I was just telling Nick at the um, International UFO Conference at the uh, final banquet, uh, they also have a banquet and they give out awards or whatever, uh, and they have a raffle. And so to uh, keep my name out there, I donated a couple books to the raffle. However, I forgot to go get them before the raffle started, and they wouldn't let me in the dealer's room to get them. Um, so they started reading off the numbers, and I ran back. That I gave them the names of the books. I, I donated a copy of um, uh, It Defies Language and um, uh, Project Beta, as, as Nick calls it. Anyway, I sat back there waiting. For, they said, just sit there and just you, you can present the books to the people or just you know come up and shake their hand and tell them to come pick them up. Okay, so I'm sitting back there and I say, oh, wow, I have a meal ticket too because I actually paid for one because I'm not, I'm, I wasn't one of the speakers. I pull it out of my pocket and they called my number within like 10 seconds. But it wasn't for my book. So I'm backstage and I say, hey, Alejandro, that's my number. He said, well, get out here then. So I stood out there looking like an idiot. I, I want a George Van Tassel book, <laughs> a, rep, a reprint of a, of a George Van Tassel book. Then I run backstage and wait for another 10 minutes till they call my name. Um, you will never guess who won the copy of um, Project Beta. Um, you know, I honestly don't know because I'm not sure, entirely sure who was there anyway. <laughs> uh, Steve, Other than you. <laughs> Steve Bassett got it. <laughs> <laughs> Was he pleased? <laughs> All he did was he came up and he had his big serious face on. He said, always enjoyed your work. Great work. Congratulations. Good, great, great work. And shook my hand and sat back down. And then he never yeah. came and picked up his book. <laughs> so I feel kind of weird. And there was a, you know, some nice woman uh, won the other book. She came to the table. I said, you know what? Pick any book you want. So she's, she picked uh, Defies Language because it's the, it's the least involved one. I mean, you, you can pick it up anywhere. Uh, and pick up the story anywhere, but she took that one. Bassett, I never saw him, and he never came by, so I have no idea what happened to him. He'd hate all my books. Well, he'd like he liked uh, Project Beta, but he, he'd hate. Uh, this is ufology. This yeah. is ufology. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, there are there are other weird things that happened there. One woman um, first uh, went to Robbie's girlfriend and told her that um, Steve Bassett was, because uh, he, Bassett came up after the, the lecture and challenged Robbie Graham to a debate anywhere at any time. Cause he, he said, I agree with nothing that he said. It was basically an anti-disclosure, uh, uh, speech. Well, the fact is, you know, this is one of the reasons why I don't really have any faith in, um, disclosure, not because it couldn't happen. What pisses me off is, certain figures in the disclosure movement who for a few years were consistently saying words to the effect of um you know i've got an insider source a powerful source and they assure me but it's coming next year and then it's coming next year and it's coming next year yeah. that went on yeah. that literally went on for years and <clears throat> after a while you either just accept it on total you know sort of um zombie-like faith <laughs> or you you take the view that well hang on a minute we cannot just keep being told this and nothing actually actually happen so my view on the on the whole disclosure movement is put up or shut up i know it's yeah. a well-worn phrase but it but it's completely 100 percent apt put up or shut up until you've got something solid if you've got nothing solid then go away you know? yeah it's like uh, it's like people that say, "I know something you don't. Something really cool is going to happen, and nothing ever happens." And you're like, "What? Yeah, just 
Exactly. Put up or shut up. I'd, I'd like to see the evidence of this great thing that's going to happen since you know yeah. so much. Yeah. I'm not going to say it never, but when it does, it's not in the format that they said, and it's usually years later. Anyway, enough. Well, of course, you know, the other, the other big problem, which a lot of people don't think of when it comes to disclosure, if disclosure doesn't tell the UFO community exactly 100% what it wants to hear, yeah. it'll deny that it's real disclosure. I mean, you, let's say, for example, the government says, okay, we're going to tell you the truth, that there really are aliens and they really have been abducting people. That is true. But Roswell was just a secret balloon. You'll have a, a mass, a ma- the vast majority of ufology will be in conflict because they'll say, well, the government's admitted that abductions are real, but they're saying Roswell wasn't, wasn't real. They won't accept that. All they will accept is something that po- puts a positive angle on the ETH. If it doesn't put, support the ETH, uh, disclosure, I mean, they'll say it's not disclosure. So, you know, it's, it's sort of a lose-lose situation from the government's perspective. And there's only one way in which, you know, the UFO community will accept it, and that is if every single thing they want to hear is validated. Yeah, well, for a certain segment, everything they wanted to hear has been validated in the last few months, but that's also cause for alarm because it's exactly what people want to hear. At least they've formed it into what they want to hear based on based on uh, saying oh, up to almost up to the line of uh, of uh, admission of something by people who are admittedly not in the government anymore. So it's not really a who knows what it is. Anyway, I'm not going to give that uh, – taking Robbie's advice, we're not going to give that uh, story any more, uh, any more time on the air <laughs> because we're actually here to talk about uh, Nick's new book, um, The Slenderman Mysteries, and the subtitle is quite – no, it's, it's not that long. An Internet Urban Legend Comes to Life. Number one new release, it says here on uh, Amazon. Well, actually, it's not number one on Amazon. <laughs> it's number one in one – Small category titled "Urban Legends and Humor." Yes, I see that. <laughs> now there might be there might be forty books in that category. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you're if you have the best selling book on Amazon one day, you probably sold like you know twelve copies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can. That's one of the things with Amazon. You can never be sure. Yeah. How many copies you've sold, even if it looks like your figures have zoomed way up high, you ju- you know it, it really is difficult to determine what that actually means in in literal sales yeah even 10 years ago when beta came out actually more than 10 years ago there was no way to find out it just said it was number one for like you know a day and a half or something and that that, you know i i asked around and it pretty much meant you could have sold 8 10 12 or 20 you know um in the day whereas the three million other books that were bought sold one or two that kind of thing yeah so you never know. Well, anyway, it's doing well. How, how many interviews have you done? Which am I getting like sloppy eighths or ninths here? <laughs> no, you're you're the third. And, third? Um, wow! I actually, yeah, because I actually only started the the publicity began on Monday. I did a, a pre-record on Sunday, mm. so I did one Sunday. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, one yesterday, and then uh, got you tonight. Yeah. Well, I better post the damn thing soon. Intro here. I'll just play the uh, anti-ETH because that's what we always play when Nick's on. So that that's obviously. Not, I'm not going to let you pick this time. I gotta I gotta think up a new intro. I think, but this one's pretty good. No, the 
the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We, we need to go through a turning point in the study of, of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that they can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, well conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friends, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio, Radio Mysterioso? And whoa, that's nice and loud. And we know the rest of that, so we'll fade that shit out. Um, still there, Nick? Oh yeah, I'm still there. Yeah, yeah he's still here. Uh, uh, Josh Cutchin just commented, "JP Slenderman, attorney at law." <laughs> 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 Slenderman. Uh, so the new book is released. Going out live, no? Yes, yes. I, I actually oh, cool. I run things live. Um, a few people listen, anywhere from 2 to 20, who knows. I don't have to do a live show every time. I mean, I don't have to do a live show on Sundays like we, I usually do. I just like recording them live and having them actually go out on the air. One, because I just like that. And two, because uh, my broadcast software actually does a backup. So we turned around and Nick had, uh, released another book. <laughs> uh, is it New Page? Yeah. And uh, um, New Page, you know, are pretty <clears throat> good at covers. Um, there's only one cover of mine that I didn't like, and um, but beyond that, you know, um, they, they sort of, you know, they put a, quite a bit of thought into um, into the cover designs, you know, to sort of get to the heart of of what it's all about. And um, so, yeah, you know, I don't really have any any issues with that. So. Yeah. Uh, did they assign you this, or did you? Is just something something you threw at them, thinking it might be interesting? Yeah. Well, that, this is actually one that I suggested um, purely and simply because I'd followed the story, 
and knew that there were so many different weird angles that most people weren't fully aware of or even partially. Um, and one of the other kind of unusual things is that although the Slenderman phenomenon began in 2009, which is virtually a decade ago, um, there's only ever been one non-fiction book written on the uh, on the Slenderman issue, you know, how it all began, and et cetera, et cetera. And that was a book um, called um, Sl uh, Slenderman from Fiction to Fact by a guy named Robin Swope. Um, so, you know, there was... Although the subject has a massive following online, really nothing had been done, you know, in book form, whether Kindle or, um, you know, um, paperback, um, through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever. Although, admittedly, there are a few um, Kindle books on The Slender Man, but they're all porn stories, you know, like... Um, <laughs> Slender Man did me in the woods or whatever, you know, that kind of <laughs> <laughs> There are a few of those for sale. I haven't bothered reading them. <laughs> Origin story, please. I know it was, um, I did a little research. I know it was a, a part of a contest. This guy named Eric Knudsen, I think. I can't remember his online yeah. name. Yeah. Uh, uh, started this in 2008 or nine. Yeah, what it was, it was actually in June 2009, and a guy named Eric Knudsen... Um, he was one of a number of people who um, took up a challenge which was put out by the Something Awful website. And basically, it was kind of like a competition, so to speak. Not a literal competition, you know, where you win a huge prize, but kind of like a challenge to see who could come up with the creepiest yeah. fictional creature for the Internet era, so to speak. And, um, you know, various people put you know, their own ideas together and submitted them. And Eric Knudsen, um, his imagery and title for the creature was the Slender Man. It's called the Slender Man because it's like a eight to nine foot tall humanoid figure in a black suit, white shirt, skinny black tie, and um, a faceless face. You know, no, you've got no eyes, no nose, no mouth, just vague shadows where they should be. And these sort of Lovecraftian tentacles coming out of its back. And, of course, with the name Slenderman, you know, it sort of has an air of, like, an urban legend kind of psycho killer, you know, something along those lines. Yeah. Um, now, what happened was that almost immediately, within a week, the whole imagery and the, the backstory that Nudson created with a few doctored photographs where he, he took some old black and white pictures of gangs of kids and then inserted pictures of the Slender Man around it. Now, I should stress for, for the listeners, this isn't, wasn't like a, a, a hoax or anything like that. It was just a genuine competition to see who could come up with something strange. You know, nobody was being deceived or anything like that. No. And But what happened within a week or so people were sort of really fixated and even obsessed by the imagery and the backstory and started to write their own fictional tales um, in terms of, you know, taking the, the mythos, so to speak, even further. And then you had um, an online um, regular uh, weekly sort of like almost like an adventure series called Marble Hornets, which was basically... Um, like a like a road trip kind of like a found footage kind of um, show of a you know group of um, young oh, yeah. people sort of 
pursuing the the slender man. Yeah. That has incredible hits. That the the Marble Hornet show, uh-huh. and um, and you had blogs set up, a Wikipedia page, all sorts of things. And from there, why it got really interesting was because in no time at all. Well, I say no time at all. It's actually about six to seven months, maybe something like that. People then started to claim to see the slender man in the real world, which then sort of started provoking you know, theories like tulpas, thought forms, mm-hmm. you know, the, the idea of the imagination striding out of the mind into the real world. And then, so you had something that began as a fictional creation, but which then kind of easily um, kind of finds its way, permeates into the world of the paranormal and has a sort of a steady, um, solid... Um, standing, if you like, in, still to this day in both camps, you know, the fictional entertainment angle and the people who believe that they're dealing with something that literally is now on the loose in, in the real world. Well, how do you think it got loose? I mean, it's it's an internet meme. It was something that was absolutely made up. And, uh, you know, notwithstanding people that make stuff up and think it's true, um, yeah. uh, 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 a la politics recently, well, the only, I mean... How you, did this, how did this become to, like that? How did, how did it become a thing that people thought was real, or at least some people, or at least these two um, girls, too, which we'll talk about? Yeah. Well, a lot of it, really, you know, if you, if you go from just the pure entertainment, fictional um, stories, you know, and um, just having fun reading about all this, the, the, way in, the only way you can accept, really, um, the idea that it may have come you know, strode out into the real world, is if you do sort of adhere to the idea of thought forms and tulpas and that, you know, the collective consciousness, so to speak, can literally manifest things if a significant number of people come to believe in it. Now, one of the reasons why there was this blurring of fiction and and fantasy and reality and facts was simply because some of the stories that were posted online <clears throat> with no real attribution other than like a, an alias um, were, were really quite deep and, you know, had a lot of depth to them. You had people who created fake U.S. government documents claiming that the agencies like the CIA were concerned and knew about the, um, you know, the Slender Man and they got, um, put them together, you know, they doctored them with U.S. government seals and, you know, that kind of thing. And some people were like, well, maybe these are the real thing. Maybe this isn't the original fiction. This is somebody leaking documents. And that happened on a number of occasions. Um, There was a case, for example, where somebody created like a fake um, medical report on somebody who reportedly had uh, encounters with the Slender Man. So what you had was impressionable young kids, teenagers, following the story but then thinking, well, what if, you know, this isn't just a story? And then thinking about the Slender Man in the real world. And, of course, if you look at the Tulpa angle, the thought form angle, you have this idea that, well, if there are literally hundreds of thousands of kids, which there are, that focus on this, thinking about it, obsessing about it, drawing it, dreaming about it, is it possible that one day it suddenly takes a leap from the world of fiction in a paranormal fashion into the the world of the Tulpa, so to speak. 
Now, it's reliant, of course, on whether or not you accept that as as being feasible. Yeah. But um, And that, of course, opens up one of the things I talk about in the book quite extensively, the whole issue of uh, things like chaos magic, magic, which, you know, practitioners of chaos magic very often use sort of archetypal uh, fictional characters and, you know, and try and manifest a real-world equivalence. You know, I've got some really weird stories like that in the book. Um, oh, did you talk about the, again, the know, Russian guy that was trying to make a golem or something? Golem? Yeah, well, there's a lot, really. I mean, a lot of people, if you, if you Google Tolper or Thoughtform, there's a couple of stories which are among the most famous, which get repeated over and again. Yeah. You know, two people particularly who, uh, two women who were heavily involved in the paranormal, um, Alexandra David Neal and yeah. Dion Fortune. Yeah. And they both had, you know, famous stories to tell of... Um, of of tulpas of thought forms, but I didn't really. I, I very briefly mentioned them in the book because you know it's kind of like you have to almost. But what I wanted to do was present a lot of really cool cases involving well-known people today who did something along these lines and absolutely sure that it worked. I mean, one of them who I talk about in the book is the the comic book artist and writer Alan Moore. Now, Alan Moore was responsible for the likes of the, the Constantine character in the comic books and in the, the movie of the same name with Keanu Reeves, and also was the, the brains behind V for Vendetta, both the, the, you know, the, the comic book series and the movie. Mm-hmm. Now, Alan Moore also is a, you know, is a, a skilled magician. When I say skilled magician, I don't mean skilled at Stage pulling magic. rabbits yeah. out of hats or cutting girls in half. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean the sort of ritual, chaos, chaos magic, that kind of thing. Now, right. he has actually gone on record as saying that when he was working on Constantine, he was sort of you know, deeply fixating on the image of him. What would he look like? What would his face look like? Uh, what would his hair look like? And um, although you know, Keanu Reeves portrayed him in the movie, the image that... Um, Alan Moore had for Constantine was actually based on Sting from the police. That's how he wanted him to look like Sting. Uh-huh. You know, sort of spiky <laughs> blonde hair, yeah. kind of like slim face, etc., etc. Yeah. Now, Alan Moore was digging into this and sort of creating the character and how he would look and, you know, his personality. And Alan Moore said one day at the height of this, he was in a restaurant on the River Thames in London, England, and he said he saw... Constantine, the character, coming right towards him. And he said that the it was exactly as he envisaged him, right down to the clothing, the hair, everything, the face. It was basically what he'd drawn. And he said that the the figure kind of gave him a sly, knowing grin, you know, but a disturbing kind of grin, and then vanished. Mm-hmm. And to this day, Alan Moore, you know, still... He's, he's kind of like freaked out by that to this day. The idea that, you know, he, he may well have briefly created a form of Constantine out of the mind, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, who knows what happens, well, if, this, uh, if the mechanism does work, um, when hundreds or thousands of people um, 
have a very specific belief, and they don't even need to imagine what it looks like uh, because it's been provided for them by the original poster, the, the, um, uh, Knudsen, and then other people yeah. that took it up, like like the people the, that internet, the, the YouTube show. I also yeah. I also thought it was interesting that one of his uh, he said that one of his uh, inspirations for it was uh, Burroughs, um, Burroughs uh, character Daddy Longlegs, the one that ran the. Uh, the junk clinic where people could sit around all day and just um, get get injections of heroin as long as they kept kept their payments up. But he said he looked like da- he, Daddy Longlegs looked like Uncle Sam on stilts. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, Knudsen had numerous uh, inspirations for the the Slender Man. Yeah, was, um, that was just one. one of, well, what I mean, the ones that I, I can tell you for sure were I mean, the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, mm. which is you know like a quasi. Man in Black type character who um, it's one of my favorites. The, the town. What's that? That's one of my favorites. Mattoon, Illinois, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Mattoon's a town or a little city in um, in Illinois, and in the 1940s there were reports of this sort of dark clothed character sort of turning up at people's houses late at night or breaking in, and um, people would be in bed paralyzed, and this sort of proto mib you know would be prowling around and um so there was the mad gasser of mattoon um you also had um he was inspired also by the writings of hp lovecraft now that's why that's one of the reasons why the slender man has these sort of cthulhu-esque tentacles coming out of his back because um uh, was was inspired by lovecraft now one of the things i talk about in the book is that there's a there's a substantial following within Lovecraft law, so to speak, that just maybe what Lovecraft was writing about weren't just his dreams and imaginations and fascinations. There's a, a quite a, a theory that's held in, in a number of um, avenues, so to speak, the idea being that when Lovecraft slept, he was literally astrally traveling to other realms and then writing about them in his in his short stories and in his novels um not realizing that what he was dreaming was actually an astral travel and so in other words what you have with nudson's inspirations is that many of them already had sort of paranormal aspects to them or they straddled the world of fiction and the world of reality, and that's an interesting thing. The Slender Man straddles reality and fiction, and there's a, a large body of people who think Lovecraft's inspirations straddled the world of the dream state and, and an astral state. So, you know, you put all those together, and you can understand if it had just been, you know, um, that Nudson had, had solely relied on totally fictional characters. But he didn't. He crossed over and used some of these sort of hazy entities that could go either way, you know. It's funny because I just had and just posted, actually, David Metcalf, and we, he talked about um, Robert E. Howard was a, uh adventure fiction writer in 1930s, 40s, uh, writing for, you know, Amazing Stories, etc. And um, he was the inventor of the Conan the Barbarian uh, character. And he said that he channeled his story material somehow and that it was uh, it was given to him. And I said, look, that's that's Richard Shaver. And what you're saying here about these Lovecraft people is, is basically the same thing. It's it's another form of uh, Richard Shaver just saying that this is actually an alternate reality 
or it's in reality that's hidden, but he had he had access to it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, again, you know, the whole issue of fiction blending into reality and in an unknowing fashion... You know, I mean, one of the one of the angles in relation to the development of a tulpa is that it requires the person to, you know, concentrate extremely deeply, extensively, at length to try and create the image and then externalize it. But yeah. the other school of thought is if you have literally thousands or hundreds of thousands of people all focusing on it, maybe it can it can be almost spontaneously achieved, you know, that um, what one person could take might take three months can be done in an astonishingly short amount of time if you're dealing with, you know, people actually fully believe in something. You know, it's kind of like... Yeah, they create a consensus reality. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. And I interrupted you. People fully believe in what? Well, I mean, when people sort of fully re believe in something it becomes much easier to sort of spread the meme. You know, if you're in two minds about something and you're not too sure, you know, it doesn't necessarily work. If you're full-on into it, you know, um, yeah. then then who knows what, you know, what the limits are. Are there limits, you know? And um, But as I said, you know, I talk in, in the book as well from the balance perspective of this is all dependent on whether or not thought forms are realities now personally i think they are um but i think also at some time on some occasions it's been used overused oh it's a tulpa you know yeah um but i do think there are some genuinely weird examples of it yeah that's a, actually that was another that was another one of my questions antecedents in in history where first one you could think of i su suppose would be alexander david neal and her um creating what yeah. she said was a, a a tibetan lama tulpa yeah yeah it was like a jolly fi uh, friar tuck type mm. character and yeah. then over, t over time it become leaner and you know sly and dangerous and she had to then speak to some of her you know contacts and find a way to deconstruct it i mean another example um which isn't a physical manifestation would, but it arguably falls into that category, are the, the so-called Philip experiments oh, yes. that were taken in Canada in the 1970s, where you had this group of uh, paranormal researchers creating this character, Philip, um, a Middle Ages-era um, guy in England, um, you know, with money and a big house, etc. And mm, wife and a mistress they and did, all that. Yeah, exactly. Had a mistress, had a wife, all ended in tragedy and uh, like a soap opera. Yeah. Um, but what happened was that they created this character of Philip, and then they launched on an experiment to contact him. And lo and behold, Philip, the character they created, started to reply by rapping on tables, etc. Um, and basically talking to them as if it really was the character that they'd actually created themselves. Um, and, you know, the idea there was that Philip had been externalized due to the focusing of the group yeah. to the point where something that never existed was actually responding about its life, you know, which, all, which of course, brings up a really interesting question. Is the, tul the tulpa actually...
fully self-aware of what it is, or does it exist in some state of confusion, or is it like an old, uh, like a tape loop, you know, just playing the same old story over and over again with no consciousness attached to it, but just sort of the image is replayed over and over, you know. I think there's different uh, ideas about what that might be and how much huh, the co-creation thing wa- walks in here again. Where, you yeah, know, how much are how how much do you bring to that that experience and how much is its own uh, independent agent, which is is debatable. Do you have any stories of something that became uh, apparently an independent agent and uh, broke free of the? Uh, you know, a little mermaid-like broke free of its <laughs> of its uh, destiny. Do you, um, I don't think I've ever heard of anything like that. Well, I mean, certainly Alexandra Alexandra David Neal. You know, her jolly friar took type character did break free, and she, and she did have to find a way to deconstruct it. Okay. Now, yeah. a friend of mine in England, Richard Freeman, who's also um, you know practice magician and cryptozoologist, Richard. Um, tried to do exactly the same thing um, in the 1990s, and it was essentially to um, to create a specific spider god in one of the old uh, pulp stories of Clark Ashton Smith. And uh-huh. um, and Richard told me how he, he he also sort of fixated and focused on this imagery of this sort of huge, you know, uh, dangerous spider god you know just a giant malignant spider and richard said on one occasion at the height of all of doing all this that he suddenly saw briefly like the shadow of a large spider on the room of the wall in which he was in and he said it was you know he said people can say what they like but he said he knew it was not a trick of the light it was briefly like the shadow of a huge spider and what richard did to deconstruct it was actually very simple he just stopped everything yeah before it could get to another level and right. just the did nothing with it just deconstruct he actually built like an altar to sort to sort in homage of it so to speak yeah but he got he destroyed that closed the room down uh, it was actually a cellar room and didn't go back in there and essentially ignored it into non-existence rather than forced it into non-existence yeah that's funny it's something um along the lines of what uh jeff ritzman was talking about with me on the show um for a couple of different shows uh the fact of trying to create something uh create a anomalous or specifically a ufo experience and that sometimes it would go further than you want it to. And his his uh, method of shutting it off, I think one of them was um, what you just said, just not, not paying attention to it anymore. But the other one, an active way, he said, was go do something normal. Go do something not, uh, something normal and yeah. routine and and yeah. uh, a, a rote thing that you do all the time. Stick to a very strict routine. That seems to uh, shut down the... Uh, the weirdness too although you know some people it, it you you can't help it it just it goes out of control i think it's people that aren't able well, to concentrate or meditate properly on on um something that the, the the quote from valet a long time ago was some of these things might be dangerous to do but some people need to do them uh just like somebody's uh, if you're studying volcanoes you have to go next to a volcano every once in a while 
but then sci- scientists who are studying volcanoes know when they start when it starts rumbling generally they know when to run away or <laughs> stop their their studies because it might it might hurt them so it, there's some analogies to be made there well yeah i mean i think one of the interesting things you know when you talk about obsessions huh. and which allow these things to get stronger is that one of the things you find with the slenderman mystery for whatever reason people do actually get obsessed with it it's not like people have a random interest in it it's their you know they're they're really primed into it i mean a good example uh, one of the people i interviewed for the book was olaf phillips who's the publisher of paranoia magazine oh yeah now olaf gave me a really revealing interview about how his young son uh one one occasion not long too long after the whole slenderman phenomenon started um all I've said to his son, you know, have you heard of this story, the Slender Man? And he said his son kind of went quiet and looked a bit worried and said, well, yeah, but where have you heard it from? And he said, well, you know, I've heard about it. I've been looking into it. And um, it turned out that as Olaf sort of probed further, his son uh, sort of revealed that all him and all his friends at school were following the Slender Man story. <laughs> you know, they knew all about it. They were following every step. But they were keeping it all away from the parents. And it was from, literally from all the parents, you know, in the group who were fascinated by this and talking about it and reading about it. They'd all sort of agreed not to, you know, tell the grown-ups, so to speak. Huh. And it was only when Olaf pushed a bit further, he realized that there was this sort of underground subculture almost within his, his son's school where... All this was unknowingly going on, and and it was only when you know he, he pushed further that the whole thing came tumbling out. And so, in other words, you know, the, there's no sort of uh, middle ground with the Slenderman phenomenon. It's something you you just wave your hand at as just well, I'm just not interested. I don't get it, mm-hmm. or you go into it at full steam ahead, so to speak, and you become obsessed with it it seems to have that kind of allure versus no allure depending on your mindset you know but there's no there's no middle ground with it (laughs) it sounds like an internet tulpa which is trying to pull interest uh from people Mm. to become stronger or something who knows um the other thing i think of when i when you say that about the children which is is vastly fascinating to me is they form their own secret society without even knowing it that's exactly what it was, yeah. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, um, Slenderman Club, you don't talk about it. Go ahead. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book, was just to, not just to tell the story of it, but really to demonstrate how something that began as an internet creation has impacted in so many lives, in so many different and sometimes dangerous and tragic ways as well you know it's it's i won't say it's unheard of previously it isn't but certainly in the modern era you know this this meshing of the paranormal and fiction i think perhaps the closest thing i can think of would be the black-eyed children which i think you know that there were some legitimate original um real weird stories you know genuine events incidents but that kind of took off, not on the, quite the scale as the Slender Man, but almost, you know, the, the, the black-eyed kids phenomenon was right behind, and to a degree still is. Um, 
and I think somewhere along the lines with that phenomenon as well, there's sort of a a tulpa aspect to it somewhere at least. Yeah, there is. Um, are there any other examples of internet memes that, uh, in the, in the modern age, an internet meme that has achieved the, uh, I guess, the notoriety? And we'll talk about the a little bit about the murders. I didn't really know too much about that, and I read up on it today. But is there anything else that has gone on to the same kind of fame or infame or whatever you want to call it? Well, there hasn't really, no. And I, and I think the main reason why is because of the... The, the sheer appearance of the slender man you know um again one of the one of the other people i interviewed um for the book um <clears throat> a guy named ian vincent ian, ian's a chaos magician he's heavily involved and interested in the slender man research and he's written various articles for hmm. daily grail about it and um ian when i interviewed him you know he, he basically told me there's nothing you, you take a guy in a black suit and he's just a guy in a black suit. Yeah. But you put him in the heart of a forest, staring at a couple of kids, he suddenly becomes a dangerous, sinister predator, which is true, you yeah. know. Then you add to that the sort of flickery, flickering tentacles and a face with no emotion and these long, spindly arms and legs, and it's just standing there. You know, there's there's no real... It's a powerful image. Comparison. There's no kind of comparison or, you know, anything that can kind of go up against that. And I think I think also the fact that predominantly it's kids and young teenagers who get really obsessed with this, you know, um, for the most part, if, if it's adults like me, it's because you're researching it, not because, oh, I've got to get all the latest on the Slender Man, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um you're not obsessed. Think, you're not. No, you're obsessed the, by the, the stories. You're obsessed by the phenomenon. Yeah, and I think the the fact that it predominantly has attracted the attention of literally hundreds of thousands of kids, I think that is what made it so powerful. Um, because they had that. You know, kids have a major imagination slightly different to ours. You know, everything's wonderful. I mean, like a one big wonder. Yeah. You know, when you're a kid. And and I think that had a lot of, to do with it as well as to why it just, you know, rocketed up beyond anything else. I saw in one of the uh, articles on it about the these two uh, girls, Mor- Morgan Geyser and, and yeah. Anissa Weyer, Weyer, Weyer um, yeah. from Waukesha, Wisconsin, uh, sometime in 2000. When, when did they try to, when did they attempt to murder her? Can you tell that story? Because you could tell a lot better than I can. And and yeah, what well, and what's well, happened Walker, recently, sure. actually? Yeah, sure. Well, this is you know a story in itself. Um, in the book, I have um, a twenty-page chapter on the on the story from you know the lead up to basically as far as I could get into the story before the book had to go to publication. Uh-huh. Uh, but I got pretty much the whole story, um, at, you know, as it exists. Um, now, basically. Um, Walkershire, you know, is, is this um, small sort of suburb um, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It dates back to the 19th century. And it's sort of like a typical, nice, regular, you know, um, century-old American town. You know, it's actually, <coughs> excuse me, it's actually the birthplace of Les Paul, the uh, guitar legend. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's true. 
And um, now what happened on uh, Saturday, May the 31st, um, 2014, you had these two girls, Anissa Weir and Morgan Geyser, uh, stabbed uh, one of their friends, Peyton Lutner. And um, she was stabbed almost 20 times in a, in a local park. Now what happened was the night before the attack, um, one of the girls had a birthday, so they had a sleepover, you know, and um, snacks. Next morning, um, parents made breakfast, and it was just like a, you know, regular kind of teenage night, you know, on a weekend. And um, Except they were like 12 the, years the old, girls, right? Yeah. Um, and the two, the two girls had deep uh, obsessions. That's the best way. I can only wait to describe his obsession <laughs> with the Slender Man to the extent that certainly the lines between fact and fiction and reality and unreality were definitely blurred mm -hmm. when it comes to this particular case. There's no doubt about that. Now, whether people take the view... This kind of polarises people into two camps. Those who think there could be sort of a supernatural aspect to this, a legitimate one, or the people who think... This is just two girls who got obsessed and crossed the line in just about the worst way possible. Yeah. And um, so, in other words, you know, that, that's basically what happened. They lured her into this wooded area of Walkershire, stabbed her almost 20 times. And it was a, you know, it was a miracle she survived because um, some of the stab wounds actually, um, you know, almost reach sort of major arteries and um, organs, you know, which could have been, you know, almost fatal. And fortunately, she actually made a very good recovery physically and psychologically and, you know, is doing totally fine now. Now, for the girls, they, their um, a reason for doing this, basically, was they wanted to become, as they called it, the Slender Man's proxy and live with him in this creepy old mansion, if you like, um, in the woods of a nearby forest. And after stabbing uh, the girl, they actually hit the road walking to this um, particular forest, which would have took them hours and hours, you know, probably a day to get there. Yeah. And it, it was no surprise that the police soon caught up with them by driving around, you know, when the, the alert was put out as to what had happened. Um, and, of course, you know, they were taken into custody. They're only 12, so... You know, it all had to be uh, handled very carefully. Um, the one thing that comes out of all this was that the it was clear that the the cover story, excuse me, the 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 story was not a cover story. You know, they weren't using the Slender Man mystery as an excuse to kill their former friend. They really believed they had to do what they set out to do. You know, there was no telling them any difference. Um, that's why, you know, the, um, the, there was a great deal of debate as to, you know, how they should be handled in court. You know, is yeah. this a criminal thing or is it, you know, something that has its roots in severe mental illness that has to be treated in that way? You know, but, but the actual outcome is that both girls are now going to be, you know, basically behind closed doors, so to speak, for literally decades. You know, they're going to be beyond middle age when they get out. Um, oh, it got changed then. 
The last thing I yes, read was yes. that they were put, being put in mental institutions because the jury couldn't come to said, look, these girls are well, yeah, so, kind of crazy. When I said uh, behind closed doors, I meant that they won't be free again. For, for you know, for one for I think it's twenty five years or twenty. The other one's forty years. Yeah. They'll be, you know, they'll be, be they'll be behind closed doors, so to speak, in that sense. Um, now, the the police handle the case as the police you'd expect them to. You know, just go with the facts and the evidence, etc., etc. Yeah. Um, but there were some genuinely weird aspects to this story. And uh, I'll explain a couple of them to you. Now, a lot of people don't know this, and I don't even know if the police might know because it wasn't part of the investigation. The, the investigation was an attempted murder. You know, that, and it was handled like detectives would handle such a case. Yeah. But back in 1921 in Walkershire, um, the body of a young boy was found in a local pond and um, he became known as Little Lord Fauntleroy. And the reason being um, that this story, Little Lord Fauntleroy, is like a posh, upper-class little boy. Right. And um, the body of the young boy was found to be dressed in uh, expensive clothing. So the, the theory was he must have come from a rich family. But he was never, ever um, identified. And uh, he went, you know, he was buried unnamed. And um, what's kind of weird is that um, a psychic actually was uh, actually tried to figure out who had killed this little Lord Fauntleroy, and she described him as a tall, thin man dressed in a black suit, carrying the body through the woods. Now, on top of that... And this was in the uh, 40s when, when she said this? No, this was 1921. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, in the 20s, no. the, 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 the psychic said this in the 20s. Oh no! Sorry, no. The, the the psychic was later. The but the story that came. Everything else was in that time. But the the, the story from the uh, the psychic came out later. But what's intriguing is but that pre Slenderman and there. Um, one of the people who I interviewed, another one I interviewed for the book, was a guy named Mike Huberty. Mike is from Wisconsin, and. Um, He's actually the the brother of Alison Jornlin, who's been doing a lot of research into the the recent Chicago Mothman right. sighting. Yeah, yeah. And well, um, I should have on well, the show. Uh, Mike is yeah. Well, Mike is Alison's uh, brother. Okay. And Mike told me, Mike told me how in um, in the 1990s he and a bunch of friends were out in um, one particular area, just literally a handful, if that, of miles from where the stabbing occurred. Mm -hmm. And he told me how he said they were out there and he saw this tall, spindly, dark, humanoid figure. And they just fled the area. Um, and there are, there are a lot of other weird situations like that in Walkershire of um, child killings and um, ties with these tall figures in black and... Um, you know, it's when you kind of look at it from that perspective, you see that the town, for for decades, has been shrouded in a lot of really weird, creepy stuff. But most of it has kind of gone under the radar because people haven't made the connection unless you actually go looking. You know. Yeah, it also sounds like when you what when you call up or um, conjure up or whatever some of these things that it 
when you start looking into it as you have that some of them might not be really stuck in the same time as you either they they start permeating throughout time as if time doesn't matter to them does that make sense say that again <laughs> you especially with the slender man it, it, somebody calls something up like this or becomes interested in it in our time but now you see these antecedents that um, that nobody really looked into. So either there's something that's around there, hanging around that looks like that, or um, when it is called into existence, that time doesn't matter to it. See what I'm saying? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is this understandable tendency to, for people to think or assume that, you know, this is a modern-day phenomenon, which for all intents and purposes, at least, it is. But the more I dug into it, the more I found... Um, reports from from decades earlier, um, and one of the ones I talk about in the book is the um, the old fairy tale that most people know of, even if they've read it, the uh, the Pied Piper of Hamelin, yeah, um, the, which tells the story of this tall, thin, as you described in the original text, uh, this tall, thin man who comes into town and offers to. Um, wipe out the rat population that has infested this German town of Hamelin. And um, he gets rid of them, drowns them in the local river by playing this magical flute which hypnotizes them to follow him and they all just basically go into the water and drown. But then the mayor decides not to pay him and so in other words the, the Pied Piper gets his own back by when all the adults are in the church on a Sunday um, he gets the um, the flute out and hypnotizes all the kids and takes them to this mountainous area with a, like almost like a portal type doorway in the woods and the kids are never seen again. Now, as I said, the he sent them into the upside story, down. <laughs> what's that? He sent them into the upside down. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, and um, and what happens is that you know he, he described as this tall, thin man who has a kind of an unusual face and looks odd. Mm -hmm. um, you can find um, from Germany, they have the story of what's known as Der Grossmann, uh, the dark man, dressed in, in dark outfits and very tall and predatory uh, to children. Um, and um, David Weatherly um, shared with me several of the, the stories that he'd got from the early 2000s when you know the term Slenderman hadn't been created mm -hmm. but people were talking to him about seeing this tall thin figure with these spindly legs and long arms hanging down and and, the, and a faceless face um, so the big question is when was it actually created or has it always been with us and Robin Swope who I mentioned earlier wrote the book Slenderman from uh, fiction to fact. Mm -hmm. He believes that Eric Knudsen didn't personally create the Slender Man, but he unknowingly tapped into an already existing supernatural oh, archetype. Yeah. yeah, just like. And upgraded uh, it for the modern era rather than from the 15 or 1600s or whatever. I see. Yeah, just like um, we were uh, talking about with uh, um, Lovecraft or uh, this other guy. Yeah. Where they, they, they yeah, were Clark Ashton Smith. Yeah. yeah. Uh or Robert E. Howard. Um mm -hmm. that they 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 had pulled these things out of uh some reality that uh that's may bleed yeah. into ours occasionally. Wow, I totally forgot the next thing I was gonna ask you. And you know what? I I I without reading the book I pumped out ten questions and we've gone through them all. 
Um, what have what haven't people asked you that they that you wish they had? I mean, I, I'm sure you've gone over some of this on these other shows, right? About the Slenderman. Yeah, I mean, what what's the yeah. okay? What's the what's the most the thing that that e- that even uh, freaked Nick Redfern out? Um, well, I, I think one of the questions that um, you know, I, I think, excuse me, is worthy of asking. And, and on these shows that I've done so far, it's more been a case of me having to sort of uh, bring, uh, excuse me, bring it up. Um, are the sheer levels of synchronicities that ah, surround it? That, sh- that um, should have been an easy classic- one. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a classic one, and this is like really creepy. Yeah. Now, the girls um, who attacked their friend or former friend in uh, May on May the thirty first, twenty fourteen. Well, the night before, um, which was the night of the thirtieth, Dave Schrader was sitting in on Coast to Coast, and he actually was doing a show on the Slender Man. And he he was speaking to the guest and talking about how, you know, the idea of the Slenderman being a tulpa and could it get stronger and stronger by people talking about it. And of all the nights to bring this up was on Coast to Coast on May the 30th um, of, you know, a show about that in significant, you know, significant, significant amount was focused on the Slenderman and was being discussed in the form of, you know, in relation to the Tulpa theory and getting stronger and stronger. And literally, only hours later, the two girls uh, attacked their friend. Yeah. And that has given rise in some quarters to the idea that, you know, the the imagery and the power of the Tulpa version of the Slender Man reached its peak that night, you know. Yeah. Does anybody... Which is uh, is very weird. Yeah. Does anybody... I've not seen anything... In the stories I read, there was none of this discussed. It's... Well, because it's kind of taboo in the press. I mean, you can't start talking about manifested thought forms and tulpas and whether that's real or not. Um, What they talk about is, you know, why does it become real for these kids or anybody else on the internet that just see something and believe in something so so deeply? Um, And as we see, there's a a huge history of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of these areas. I mean, it's one thing to talk about the Slender Man and, oh, it's a tulper and this or that. But when you're talking about, you know, um, possible pr- prison time or, or, you know, in a hospital, people's lives and families ruined, you know, you, you do have to be a little bit um, tactful yeah. as to how you tell the story because, you know, we're not talking about something from 500 years ago when everybody's gone, Right. you know. Um we're talking about people who, are, like I said, are in turmoil and, you know, um, children, you know, locked up, et cetera, et cetera. Granted, you know, they did what they did and they got, you know, um, the result that the result that happened, you know, that's what happened. But in saying that, you know, I think the media largely stayed away from the alternative angles to all this purely and simply because... This was essentially a case going to court, you know, and I think they decided to take just the the, the grounded down to earth approach for fear. Otherwise, it might turn into a circus, you know, with yeah. a bunch of paranormal researchers <laughs> storming the court every day to pick up on every aspect of it, you know. Um, 
Have any of these so, reporters called you? No, but I mean, one of the people who um, who has um, written about this and talked about it, um, a, a guy named Ter Krulas, I don't know if you know him or at all, he wrote a book, a really kind of witty, insightful book called Monsters, uh, all about why cryptozoologists do what they do. <laughs> it's a really good book. Yeah. And um, he actually um, sat in on some of the uh, court proceedings, he was telling me, and I, I relate the interview in the book. And um, one of the girl's uh, fathers actually sat right next to him. And when they brought her in, shuffling, you know, with her ankles tied in this, uh, clearly, as he described it, you know, probably the only orange suit that, you know, that they could find because it was like three or four times too big. And he and he said the father just started to cry. And it was just sort of a, you know, it was just a turmoil, you know. And um, mm -hmm. so I think people tended which is understandably, they tended to focus on the real-world aspect of this event rather than, you know, the the weird history, which legitimately does exist at Walkershire, of Mike Huberty seeing this spindly, tall, skinny, dark figure. And then you have this 1921 story of a young boy being killed there and, and a psychic, you know, coming up with the image of this tall, thin figure in a black suit. Um you she know, might have been that's telling the, the sort future. Of thing that cannot get that that cannot be brought up in a court case. You know, yeah. it would turn the whole thing into a a farce and would be in danger of even being thrown out. I would have thought. Yeah. When did the psychic say that? What year? Oh, this that was um, at some point in the some point in the two thousands. I know that I'd have to check exactly, but I know it was the two thousands. Ah, okay. But it well, wasn't. But it wasn't. I mean, you know, I mean, whether or not. The Slenderman aspect had an impact on it, or it was coincidence, or, or whatever. I don't know, but I mean, you know, even even so, it's still you know an odd story that um, you know you've got these um, these weird links to this town, yeah. and um, and Mike Huberty told me of a, a number of other weird stuff going on there. Uh, do you remember a few years ago um, there were these they became known as the Smiley Face Murders. Mm, I remember that. I remember that name. Refresh my okay, memory. Well, basically, it was like um, in around Wisconsin and some of the surrounding states, there were reports of, of young men being killed, drowning um, in various rivers and bodies of water. And um, people would see that, you know, a classic smiley face, a sticker or a, you know, a spray paint of it on a brick wall or whatever. And... Um, Mike told me how he looked into some of these stories and where they occurred, um, there was a, in the same place around Walkershire where there were legends of this strange water-based humanoid figure that would drag people into the rivers. Now, you know, you can find um, urban yeah, legends like that everywhere. around the world. Yeah, but it's interesting, you know, that again, you've got this predatory figure, another one in and around Walkershire as well. Um does it mean anything? It depends really on you know your outlook on urban legends and how they spread, and um, which is a legitimate part of it. But um, you know the the more I dug into it, the more weirdness I found huh. in and around Walkershire. You know that's the best way I can sort of describe it, really. Any synchronicities start popping up for you while you're doing this research? Did you did uh, did, did it did it uh, did it start um, touching you? 
Well, one thing um, which I actually didn't even, you know, recognise or realise, when I interviewed Alice and John Lynn about, you know, the whole issue of um, the radio show and, you know, the, and the attack the next day, um, I didn't realise till she told me that when I phoned her to do the interview, um, it was actually uh, the fourth anniversary of the attack. Excuse me, the... Um, excuse me, let's get it right. The third, the third anniversary of the attack. Mm-hmm. To that day, um, yeah. which you know it was just kind of an odd thing, but um, but there are, I mean, there are other synchronicities surrounding it as well. Very, very, some are sort of um, long and drawn out, and be <laughs> actually quite difficult for me to uh, to explain. But I mean, certainly, I won't say I sort of had any direct synch- synchronicities apart from that one, which you know. I guess it could just be coincidence, <laughs> but um, but certainly, um, you know, digging into it, um, you know, some of the stories that people told me, you know, opened up a lot more in relation to the um, uh, the paranormal angle rather than just this is a psychological mental illness issue that needs to be treated. You know, more and more people are, are coming around to the idea. Um, that this is like an independent force and a form. Um, I won't say that surprised me, it didn't, um, but it did surprise me the sheer number of people who were now going down that path who originally thought, well, this is just, you know, it's just a story, and now it's a case of, well, maybe it's just not that, you know. Um, but, um, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff I talk about in relation to early reports, like with De Grossman and things like that, and um, the Pied Piper of Hamelin, and bringing it up to the present day, and and somewhere in between, and I and I do think it's important that um, you know Nudson's um, creation being inspired to a significant degree by supernatural archetypes and phenomena, rather than just picking up from the average Stephen King book or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, which he also did actually as well from Stephen King's writings and, and did oh that's one. right so, yeah. um, especially his yeah. short stories he said yeah so you know I think overall I think the Slenderman phenomenon we can learn a great deal from it you know in relation to potential other issues that might surface one day in terms of how the mind can be kind of hijacked you know to where you become obsessed. Um, I mean, one of the cases I talk about, um, a girl had a falling out with her daughter. I mean, a girl had a falling out with her mother. Yeah. Burned the house down and was, had a big fixation, obsession with the the slender man. Um, the, um, the, there are other cases like that of, of um, you know, children um, sort of getting violent with their parents. I mean, like, all kids get violent or angry with their parents at one point or another. But there was a spate of cases in the wake of the Walkershire attacks of kids getting really violent. And, you know, when the police checked out their bedrooms, you know, they got inch-thick journals and that kind of thing all about their thoughts on the Slenderman and what they were going to do to their parents and things like that. Mm. So, you know, it was like there was almost this undercurrent of, um, you know, of, of weirdness just permeating in the wake of the uh, of the attacks you know I mean another example a perfect one 
and again, a lot of people don't really know all the ins and outs of this. Um, 2014, I don't know if you remember Jared and Amanda Miller, um, who lived in Las Vegas, and they went on a shooting spree and um, oh, killed yeah. a couple of police officers. And um, they were both totally caught up with the whole um, Slender Man, you know, with the whole mythos. Um, they were tied up with the whole, um, like, the Joker imagery. You know, they would go to parties dressed up as the Slender Man and the Joker and um, things like that. And, um, and again, you know, they crossed that line from having an interest into becoming psychotic killers. You know, there's no other way to describe them, really. And, um, and again, you know, the question is, is there something about this phenomenon that causes people to sort of just suddenly flip? Or mm. are these people sort of like a bubbling keg of dynamite <laughs> just waiting for something to kick them off? Like yeah. the Slender Man, you know. And, What's the and again, match that lights it? If you look, are you looking at it from the perspective of like a psychiatrist or are you looking at it from the perspective of a, a paranormal researcher? Or should we be kind of all speaking to... Should we all be speaking to each other, you know? How do you mean? Well, I mean, the, the different communities, the, you know, the psychiatrist, should they be speaking with the paranormal researchers? The, oh, I see. You know, the... the, the experts in the field of um, tolpers, uh, chaos magicians, should they all actually be getting together and, you know, in a non-prejudiced way, put all their thoughts on the table and see where it goes, you know. Um, I doubt that would happen because particularly people in professional positions would be worried about their positions, um, which is why you don't see many regular zoologists going looking for Bigfoot. Not because they're not interested, they just don't want the fallout. Yeah. Um, so what I think <laughs> is that, you know, there could be some, despite all the tragedy and death and everything else, you know, the if, if this could somehow bring the sort of the, um, the communities of the paranormal, um, you know, people, mental health issues... Um, the supernatural, if we could have like a good solid debate without, you know, humor and fun poking and ridicule and just look at everything, we might actually, you know, achieve a great deal. I mean, if, like if you look at UFO conferences, if there's one, if there's one debunker in the audience, they're hostile to it, to that person. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I think the, the you know, it's like if somebody put on a conference on Roswell, you know, I think the best Roswell conference would be a conference that instead of having, and no disrespect to these people, but instead of having, say, Stan, Kevin Randall, um, Don Schmidt, who are all full-on believers in the ETH angle, yeah. why, not have, why not have Stan talking about, you know, MJ-12, Kevin talking about which you know, witnesses he believes, Don Schmidt talking about his ideas, me, <clears throat> me talking about, you know, the high-altitude balloons and the uh, human guinea pigs. Yeah. Maybe invite somebody from the Air Force to talk about the crash test dummies and how and why they came to that conclusion and then have a round table. That would be a great conference. And I think, you know, when opposite sides actually come together instead of just ignoring each other or being hostile. Yeah, echo chambers. A lot could be achieved, you know. I think a lot can be done in that sense. 
Yeah, but it, it nobody would come to that conference because it was just the the uh, the, the skeptics would piss them off. Um, I guess it would have to be more like well, a private conference or something done, you know, for for video or something like that. But yeah, I completely agree with you to have um, uh, people that don't agree with each other that are that have done the research very carefully. Mm-hmm. And can answer each other's things point by point, and don't get upset when somebody uh, challenges them. That that's another yeah. really hard one to you know, uh, yeah, to to to, to schedule. It's um, that, that's yeah. a tough I mean, one, but you know, the best to, minds on both sides. Conf- yeah, I mean, we've all been to conferences where they're as bland as hell, and <laughs> but people are satisfied because <laughs> they hear what they want to hear. Yeah, and then on the other hand, you have conferences like we've been to where it almost turns into a fist fight <laughs> <laughs> almost it almost did and um you know so you have varying degrees of you know emotional responses and i think i think we see that in the slender man mystery where you have a faction that wants to keep it this is just psychological issues and people crossing the line or you know on the other hand you have the people who say there's more to this i kind of view it not as a detached observer, but someone who is showing the reader all of the angles, but without any kind of bias. And I think that's the responsible way to do it when you're dealing with something that is just chaotic, you know. Uh, I don't mean chaotic in relation to chaos magic. No, no, chaotic I mean chaotic meaning it doesn't... In the sense, yeah. Yeah, I mean chaotic in the sense that the whole thing is insane you know this thing created out of fiction and it ends up with two you know two girls behind you know whatever and and another girl almost killed um it's the story itself you know the true story is just bizarre in itself not just because it involves a slender man yeah but because you just wouldn't imagine that something like that could actually ever really happen and for the phenomenon to have an incredible gigantic following as well does it still after this murder thing does is there still a big gigantic following did it just make it more uh notorious and more followers and more weird kids that are into it and do do you know if that how much of an effect it's had yeah i mean if you just you know if you just type in slenderman you know in google you look at the number of you know, hits, etc. Um, um, most of the blogs and forums um, that, you know, are dedicated to um, the Slenderman, they have gigantic hits, you know, that, that that's still going on. And, of course, the court case, more than anything else, brought the issue of the Slenderman um, to the attention of the media and the mainstream population that very often other than like area 51 bigfoot and roswell there isn't much that kind of strides out from the world of the paranormal into the regular media and into the you know the living rooms of uh, of, of you know just everyday normal people um there's certain like i said there's certain key issues everybody knows about roswell area 51 bigfoot nessie um right but the Slender Man got sort of an even bigger lease of life because of the court case. And, of course, when you've got, you know, kids all focused on this, hundreds of thousands of them, um, you know, that just draws them in even further because it's it's their story. It's their little thing 
for their era, like Olaf said, Olaf Phillips said about his son, you know, that this isn't stuff for the adults to know. This is this is based around us, you know. Yeah. I I wish I could remember the towns. I mean, the town. You know, for the first hour of this show, I was looking at the stats. One person was listening from Texas. This is probably our friend Carlos. Six people were listening from Canada from one server. Huh. And it's a pl- one from it's where? A, from Canada. And I can't, and I've never okay. seen that, and I can't remember the name of the town where the server was. I think I could probably look it up tomorrow, but I've hmm. never seen any listeners from that from that uh, area come up hmm. on the on the uh, listener uh, log because um, it'll tell you basically it tells you where the server is that they're using like uh, yeah. Carlos is in Cedar Park Texas and you know mm-hmm. and then I, I see one from you know w- once in a while I'll see one if you're from L- uh, Los Angeles and if you're from England but they tell you the town it'll say Leeds England or something like that this was mm-hmm. some weird town in in, in um, Canada six listeners and I've never well, seen you know, I mean, six listeners on one knows? one uh, server. Well, I mean, you know, maybe it's a you know a bunch of friends who are hugely interested in the phenomenon. You know, um, that's, that's one way to look at it. You know, as I said, it, it, there's no doubt that it has it has the I won't say appeal. That sounds sort of gives it too much like of a like a positive sort of jolly approach. Um, what I would say, you know, it has this ability to just entrance people, not just because of the imagery, but because of the whole, the entire story of it. And um, and I don't think we've really seen much like that. I mean, in terms of, like, the mythology and kind of the creepy um, angles, I think, you know, it kind of mirrors in some respects the stories of, like, Spring-Heeled Jack and Jack the Ripper, you know, this this legendary, creepy, dangerous figure roaming around and taking lives, you know, and and has is seen as like a dangerous person, but then other people are like, well, maybe, you know, we can't catch him because there's something else going on, something supernatural, you know. And um and I think I think to a degree at least that happens, you know, um the idea of um something that's seems or should be human or something or becomes paranormal or vice versa you know or it straddles both camps and um and we get that a lot in you know the slender man people people kind of don't know what the story is it kind of puzzles them because it's not black and white you know it has all these different um things going on and so um i think you know, it's all. I won't say it's unique because it isn't, but it's certainly unique in recent years as to the power of the phenomenon and how it's changed lives largely badly. Um, you know, I don't, actually don't know of any people who've looked into all this, and you know, it's, all, Sweet, it's totally it's positive. <laughs> yeah, there's always some sort of um, even like with Olaf. You know, he was kind of disturbed at first by the fact that he's kid and all their friends um were were in on this little secret which they did not want to share with anybody who wasn't a kid you know so now that's not like a disturbing or dangerous or anything like that really but it's just it's a little bit unsettling to think that there could be all across the country you know 
kind of similar little cliques, so to speak, yeah. where the Slender Man is their little secret and um, to hell with mom and dad. That or kind who of knows thing, what. You know. Yeah, exactly. At this point. So, so the, the Slender Man tells us the mystery and the phenomenon, tells us a great deal, I think, about the human mind as, as much as it does about... Um, you know, the Slender Man himself or itself, you know, how obsessions develop, how paranoia can so easily and quickly set in on someone's mind, um, how, you know, one imagery can can create, you know, such an incredible, incredible in terms of the size, you know, of, mm. of the phenomenon. And, um, so in many, in some respects, at least, you know, it isn't a paranormal story. In some respects... It's a tale of of human tragedy in some respects, um, but as I said, the more you dig into it, you simply cannot avoid seeing a lot of strangeness that goes beyond just um, eccentricity or mental illness. That I honestly do believe there's more to it, and I, I think the the Tulpa angle I think is a, is a valid part of it. Um, now, to what extent that should have a bearing on, you know, if anybody else attacks someone in the name of the Slender Man, that, that, when, that is when things would get really kind of uh, controversial, you know, if somebody actually says, well, you know, they did it because of A, B, C, X, Y, Z, and A, B, C, X, Y, Z happens to be something supernatural. You know that would be on pretty much unheard of. Um, how that would be handled legally, you know, I don't know. I mean, even with the girls' <laughs> At this case, point, they couldn't. You know, that was that was that was treated as a as a regular case, even though the subject matter was controversial. It was handled straightforwardly according to the law. You know, if if more of these you know events, God forbid, they happened, and people took more of a supernatural angle to it, you know. Could we see the defense being, well, the Slender Man made me do it, literally made me do it, you know. The other thing that comes to mind is can an obsession, can a public obsession like this, um, can it cause other people to see these things? Um, that the, another question. Actually, that was something I hadn't got to in my questions. Have there been any memes or ideas that have started appearing to people that had no idea what they were and were not involved in the original, you know, obsession or, or creation of the, well, Tulpa, if you want to call it. Well, the closest I can think of is the people who claimed and actually told their stories pre-2009 when Eric Knudsen created The Slender Man. Now, um, David Weatherly, for example, David told me... Um, he actually he lived in Texas for a while, not long ago, and uh, he came over one Saturday night. We're chatting. He was telling me how, you know, he had these stories, um, you know, these accounts um, five years before the Slenderman phenomenon was even named. Never mind, began to take off. So, in other words, yes, there are sort of people who have like independently, you know, seen these things and. Um, encountered them um but not from the perspective of um you know it, it being tied in with the, the nudson story now but what i would say 
one of the interesting things is that most, nearly every case I've got on record, there was only one witness to the Slender Man at any given time. Now, Mike Huberty and um, his friends, um, there was one guy and two girls, um, and I think Mike and just the two girls saw the, the entity. Yeah. Um, that's one case where there were three of them, and that was like literally a handful of miles from where the, the stabbings occurred. Um, and But for the most part, it's one witness at a time. Now, somebody might say, well, that, that's more kind of implies like an internal phenomenon rather than something external, if it's only one witness. Yeah. Um, but then again, if if you're the one fixating on it and, you know, you're in the typical locations where the Slender Man's seen, which are isolated wards or when you sleep in bed, those sort of situations, you might be more on your own. But, you know, I, I don't have an answer as to why, you know, the most witnesses are, are solitary. But if you look at the case on record, they actually are. Huh. That's funny that you that, that only one person would see something like that and not it wouldn't be a shared even though the, even though the creation of it is is definitely a shared uh, uh, phenomenon. Yeah, no, I mean it's interesting as well with the two girls. I mean they, um, you know, they had pre-existing weird um, things Sessions. going on. One of the girls, for example, had the um, you know, these strange scratches um, on her skin, and. Um, you know, I'd seen strange things, et cetera, et cetera. Um, again, this was before the Slender Man issue. Now, both girls, you know, were full-on believers in the Slender Man phenomenon, but it's never really sort of been made clear as to whether or not they actually saw the Slender Man together at the same time, or was it that they shared beliefs and ideologies and everything else in relation to the... Um, the Slender Man, um, you know, it's, that's two distinctly different things. So, um, you know, there's, there's still much more, you know, to learn and understand about all this. Uh, and I mean, since the book came out, and when word got out that I was doing the book, and after I, you know, handed over to the publisher, I got a number of stories from people who said, you know, I saw one of these, and until I knew the term Slender Man, I just saw it. It was just like this tall, skinny guy, you know, that looked like a ghost. Um, so, you know, there's there's something going on, and it's a real mystery, part and parcel fiction and facts. Um, and part of it, you know, the the big hazard with Tolpers is when you create the phenomenon, if you're not able to deconstruct it, you actually are then responsible for creating something which is now its own entity and typically with tulpas with thought forms the new leash of life they've got um or the first leash of life they've had rather than a new one um they want to hang on to it even if they don't fully understand what they are themselves you know um you know you could look at it from the perspective of, of a person who loses their memory they don't know who they are. They can't remember the name. They don't know where they live. They just exist. You know, I wonder if that is what the tulpa is actually like. And is it, like I said earlier, is it just like a loop, you know, an old video loop just playing over and over again without any 
personal, um, direct thought. Um, I mean, who knows? We don't know. Um, yeah. And I think, hopefully, you know, what I'm hoping the book might do is just sort of stimulate a lot of debate, um, which would obviously um, revolve around the Slender Man, but which might also impact on other aspects of the paranormal where we might not have considered that this could be the answer to those angles as well. I mean, a good example would be... Um, it's not it's not a it's not a sort of clear um black and white example but you've got you know if you look back in the 50s with the space brothers you know long-haired space brothers turn up in desert locations mm -hmm. drop you know rip, get rid of all your nukes yes there are still a few contactee cases today but largely the contactees the space brothers have been replaced by the greys yes. you know flight saucers who reports seeing the flying saucer land today with tripod landing marks? You know, they were all over the place in the 50s and 60s. Today, people see the, the black triangles. Um, you know, you go back to the 60s with John Keel, where you had all the really creepy-looking men in black. Now you have the black-eyed children. We didn't yeah. have them decades ago. Right. We have them now. Yeah. So I think... I think a study of the Slender Man phenomenon could be advantageous to looking at parallels with multiple different phenomena as to how they come, could have come into existence. And maybe that existence, in many cases, actually caused inadvertently by us. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, um, we, we may be leading the dance, even though we don't think it's... Uh, we just think these things come in and you know, are coming from wherever... And that's the problem with looking at something as a an external reality and that we experience external reality and not a interaction between us and whatever you know our brains and what's outside of our brains. I think that model is um, mm -hmm. is valuable when looking at this stuff because um, the subject object thing I think that the time has passed to look at these things in that way it's uh which you know which sort of makes you wonder why people are gathering data on these things because I don't know how much the data is worth when it's uh, dealing with things that people aren't used to. So, you know, how is, how is the data going to be gathered when you're gathering things that, that can't be put into categories? And a lot of times you know that researchers, when they can't put things into the categories, they generally ignore them. Yep. Well, I mean, another good example, you know, my other big interest, cryptozoology. Yeah. Um, study of unknown animals well you know like lake monsters lake monsters you can find stories of lake monsters all around the world some of them are seen in absurdly small not even lakes but pools you know <laughs> um and sometimes I, I wonder if you know the you know, the idea of the human mind the subconscious you know you you get into sort of a wade out into like a dirty lake or something you think what's in here you know a snapping turtle a little alligator who knows what and i sometimes wonder if you know that innate um subconscious fear of what lurks in the woods or in the dark waters could inadvertently lead to like the tulpery created versions of something like a lake monster you know everybody's heard of lake monster stories um, they're all over the place. I mean, where I grew up in central England, there's um, actually a, like a, a small pond not too far from where I lived, and there was a rumour that there was like a six-foot-long um, dangerous pike in there. No one ever saw it, but that was like a classic example. 
you know, and I do sometimes wonder if some of these urban legends because, literally do become reality because people believe in them, you know. Maybe yeah. that's why sightings of the Loch Ness Monsters aren't, you know, everyday occurrences. It's like when somebody reports one, then there's a flurry of reports. Now, maybe that's down to mistaken identity, but maybe it's due to so many people fixating on it and spontaneously then manifesting it briefly because it's getting a sudden influx of of interest in it. That Maybe that's why 500 years ago people saw fairies and goblins. They don't see them today. For the most part, that's because people don't believe in them. So maybe they've fragmented and deconstructed and they're waiting patiently for the day when fairies are in vogue again and they'll, they'll be kick-started back into a, a new existence. Yeah, well, J.M. Barry may have had an idea when, when he said that Peter Pan mm. said you have to believe in the fairies or they w they will not appear. It also brings up That's the the, the um, um, Whitley Strieber thing about uh, he's... Uh, I don't know what book this was in. I'm still trying to f uh, find out. I've, um, I should just crowdsource it. Are you uh, on about from his uncle, um, Ernest um, Strieber? The story about... Um, the the reason that the uh, the debunking had had uh, ramped up in the fifties is because some element of the government was scared that if we gave them too much credence, that would give them more of a chance to get at us or appear in the skies or yeah. affect us in some way. Uh, yeah, that's exactly a, what Strieber said. That uh, his, his uncle Edward Strieber, who was in the um, in the military, said that the there was like some aspect of government or the military realized that um, you know sort of giving notice to them um, actually kind of strengthened them, you know, in the sense that, um, which is very Tulpa-like. And like you yeah. said with Jay and Barry, you know, if you don't believe in the fairies, they don't appear. That, that's like, in simple terms, that's a perfect example of a, of a Tulpa. I mean, yeah. um, there's a really good novel that I recommend people read. Um, it's actually turned into like a six-part series, but the first one's, the best one. It's called Mythago Wood, M-Y-T-H-A-G-O, Mythago Wood, written by a, a, a really good writer who's unfortunately dead now, now a guy named uh, Robert Holdstock. Mm. And he wrote a book about this magical area of forest in England, in southern England, where there were all these ancient archetypes like King Arthur, Merlin, Robin Hood. And they basically, when people originally saw or heard of Robin Hood and King Arthur and Merlin, when England was under attack from the from the French and so on, the collective unconscious of the people created like heroic figures from mythology, like um, Robin Hood and and as I said, uh, Lancelot and Merlin and people like that. And in the in the story, they still exist in this ancient forest, and um, and some of them are folly formed and some of the fragmentary formed where they don't know who they are and they just wander around in sort of a, a state of oblivion and others you know become as I said fully formed and can interact with us and it's a really cool story like a thought-provoking story that although it's fiction you can actually apply it to a lot of aspects of the paranormal yeah Hey, I, fi I figured some of the listeners came back from that one town. It's Amos, Quebec, A-M-O-S. Ah. Well, maybe there's a Slenderman research group there or something. Maybe. 
I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm looking right now. I put uh, Amos Quebec Slenderman. No, nothing <laughs> about it really coming up. Just stuff from Twist tri- uh. t- from uh, TripAdvisor. Where to stay in Amos Quebec? I have to remember that one. Yeah, I I actually took a screenshot of it so I don't forget. <laughs> yeah, we talked about Philip. We talked about all these um, manifested thought forms. It seems to be a uh, aspect of the paranormal of of belief, not even belief, but being open to it. As in Geller, Yuri Geller used to go to these university laboratories and all that, and it's um, the. Puharik and other people that were hanging out with him and knew what he was doing said that, and th- this has been you know, documented also as, uh, in other paranormal research, that the less resistance there was to something, the more likely the, the um, things would manifest. Uh, meaning if you, had some, if you had a bunch of people that were hostile to it, there was a lot, far less likely or at least somewhat less likely that the phenomena under study would manifest or work. Whereas if some if people were either neutral or receptive to it, especially receptive, and it you know and you think well they just believe in it so that no no I mean objectively things happened um, when yeah. when people were more receptive to it, so yeah I think there's a there, there's a uh, there's a real uh, what's the word if you have an affinity for something that is that is ephemeral that it gives it a little bit more strength. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect, you know, like sort of segue into what's got what's happened with the Slenderman. Yeah. You know, um, it really has just, yeah, it it re- really hasn't needed anything to propel it forward. You know, it's it's just going on its own speed and its own power, um, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. Or you know, it depends which. Which angle you're approaching it from, I guess. You know, if you see it just as pure entertainment and fun, you know, you're probably not going to get anything weird happen. You start thinking, well, you know, could I call this thing up? Should I? Um, could I try and create a Tolper version of it? You know, multiple Tolper versions. Um, then you may well find that. Um, you know that uh, you, you get more of a feedback. I mean, it's kind of like I, I use this quote quite a lot because it's a good one. I mean, the uh, the 2002 movie version of um, the Mothman prophecies, where um, <laughs> one, where one of the characters uh, played by Alan Bates, Alexander Keel, excuse me, Alexander Leake, who's based on John Keel, right. he says to Richard Gere's character, "When you notice these things, they notice that you notice them." Mm-hmm. In other words, just the, the very act of focusing on these phenomena kind of sets alarm bells off, so to speak, with them, and they then flock turn on to, you. Yeah, they you flock know? to you because you're like a, you're almost like a yeah. beacon in their in their whatever yeah. whatever space they're coming from. Um, it also yeah. reminds me of uh, um, when I, I, I spoke with Dean Radin years ago. He he said that um, meaning was a dimension. Meaning mm-hmm. that if you had, if there was something you were interested in, it was far more likely to. Ma- uh, what's the word? Okay, doing hundreds of dice, you know, throwing dice experiments d- declines something that's going the the thing under under uh, under study. But if you replace it with something that the recipient is very interested in, you suddenly start to get much more uh, robust uh, feedback on mm-hmm. it. 
Yeah, no, I, I think you're right, and um, you know that that gets to the heart of all this. And I think I think a lot of people might be surprised, you know, how many paranormal phenomena seem totally separate, but they may not be, you know. And again, that gets to sort of the heart of a lot of Keel's stuff about so much of these phenomena being interconnected, you know, and um, you know somebody sees a Bigfoot in the same area where they saw. A UFO, you know, mm-hmm. and just down the road there's a haunted house or whatever. Um, and I think we probably would have made more in the paranormal research, would have done, gone further than we have gone. Although we've gone a long way, we could have gone much further if it wasn't for the fact that you have stubborn communities, that we're the ghost community, you're the Bigfoot community, you're the, you know, the late monster community, yeah. you're the people who investigate UFOs, etc., etc. Right. And if if people could put away their belief system, so to speak, and look at all this data together, we might actually make far more of an advancement than we have in decades, you know. Um, but the problem is people are just so, so tied on their beliefs, you know, like Roswell, you know. Have an open mind, not a, not a concluded mind, you know, that it's, it's aliens. And yeah. That's it. You know. um, look at sort of the crossovers that Keel talked about, you know, with demonology 500 years ago, kind of paralleling some of the effects that people report in abductions, you know, like marks on the skin, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, going down with illnesses and um, runs of bad luck and things like this. You know, you, you find this in all these different subjects, but it's it's almost as if, they don't want to kind of intermingle, you know. Um, and I've never really got that. I just don't understand, you know, why not look at all the data instead of... But I guess in some huh. respect, it's like, it's treated like going to church, you know. It's, you're told what you're told, and you believe yeah. what you believe, and you don't question it. And that happens in the paranormal world. And uh, Well, I know, think may, it might be the self-negating ma- nature of this may... may just be you know the simple ego nature of people especially people that are obsessed with things where they think that their thing is the most important and the other things are not the most important but um unfortunately that's the kind in a, in a great in a, to a great degree that's the kind of uh people that these subjects um attract it's like uh, maybe maybe if people want to get involved with the paranormal, it should be like Israel Regarda used to say: before you start any um, course of the in, in 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 the occult, go through a good session of you know a good uh, course of psychotherapy to make sure you're doing this for the right reasons, and, <laughs> and you're not doing it for some ego based reason or trying you know trying to make every you know. my my idea for uh, that most people getting involved in the in um, the occult is when do I get to smite. Because <laughs> they're in it because they they want to get back at people, and I think uh, uh, there's some analogy to be made with people that are interested in the paranormal or UFOs, and that they can say, "Look, this is um, the, see, I told you so." When when somehow it's validated in some way, and not because mm-hmm. they're truly interested in the mystery or that that's secondary. I I really think that's what goes on with um, I don't know if the majority of people, but the loudest ones. Um, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I, I guess, again, like with the Slenderman thing, this tells us more about sort of the way the human mind works than it does about the phenomena themselves, you know. Um, yeah. 
or maybe it's, you know it's the two are actually just directly connected but um I, but i guess for me you know the the, the whole slender man thing in and the timing of it right now you know is is important because it's not just about the slender man it is about all these other potentials mm-hmm. um you know that could answer questions that on you know, at first glance don't seem to have anything whatsoever to do with a slender man um you know look i mean there aren't many people in ufology who would do a lecture on how um chaos magic could have an impact on the ufo phenomenon or on ufo researchers yeah. you know certain groups and organizations would be aghast at something like that you know they'd be they like, already what? have been i've, I've seen them get well, aghast as yeah, soon as you just start suggesting that, they, they say, oh, yeah. no, no, science. It's like, yeah, dude, yeah. you know. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, the problem is, it, what it, it, comes down to one, it comes down to one thing, a, a lack of balls. That's all it is. <laughs> and, uh, it's a lack of balls, which is, and that, that lack of balls is created or provoked because they don't want to upset the status quo of asses on seats, and nuts and bolts aliens. Um, what they don't want to go down an alternative pathway for fear of losing what's there. And if that happens, you're no longer you're no longer like impartial and, and open-minded. You're yeah. feeding a belief system. system. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and what's worse is that it's very often done knowingly. You know, if you're totally ignorant of it, well, then you're just a fool. You know, <laughs> but if you're knowingly, if you're knowingly um, you know, not sharing new concepts and ideas when we've kind of reached stalemate on so much of these things. Well, that's just, that's, you're coasting along just to, you know, keep the group going, pay yeah, the bills, yeah. earn a bit of cash. Um, well, that's why I've said that the, the, this change is coming from outside the these communities. It will come from somebody else that's not within the community that finds out something that, uh, or notices something that connects these things or or pushes it along, and it will create something new that is not um, not encapsulated in a in, in the UFO community or the Bigfoot community or whatever, and their their cliques and their conventions and all that. It's it will be something that they ignore that is suddenly very um, suddenly very important, um, and they still won't notice it. Uh, and I'm not exactly no, sure what think- that is. I I think the study is moving ahead without ufologists. And other ologists um, noticing, and at some point they're going to wonder what what happened. Well, you know what? They're still going to be going on on their same on their same thing with their same fans and all that. But meanwhile, people will be making breakthroughs in other areas that um, have nothing to do with with their groups. Uh, I, I truly believe that's what's going to happen. I think it's already happening. Yeah, and I, you know, I think there's there's sort of there's pro and cons, you know, as to which way we look at all this stuff. But I mean, I think when you have people who are just not willing to look at new concepts and ideas like i said you know the looking at the angle of like how chaos magic may actually impact on somebody's encounter with a ufo yeah um well we, we haven't really got anywhere we've just following the straightforward nuts and bolts knock on the you know the spaceship door angle yeah. that's not got us anywhere really and and just collecting more and more abduction stories and more and more reports of flying triangles, that doesn't <laughs> get us anywhere. What we need is a, a different approach 
But when you're dealing with people who don't want a different approach, just, you know, all they want is their... It's like their fucking comfort blanket. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that, the, the kid, it's like the kid on Charlie Brown, whatever is, whoever's got Linus the blanket. Linus and his security uh, blanket. Linus, yeah. yeah. You know, it's much of ufology is like that. It's, um, well, tell us, tell us the stories we want to hear. Don't let Nick talk about his views on Roswell, you know. <laughs> just tell us. That just please just tell us that there are dead body, uh, dead alien bodies under Area 51. Now maybe there are dead bodies, alien bodies at Area 51. Yeah. But we have no way of knowing. That. Want when you want to be a believe believe that, and when that excites you, rather than it being an, an area to investigate, you've kind of crossed the line. You know, um, you should look at you know if you think there's dead aliens at Area 51 investigate it but don't just talk about it because oh this is what we want to hear we don't want to hear about nick's crap about why aliens didn't crash at roswell we want <laughs> you know somebody out to tell us they did you know and that's and we then we can go home happy well that's that's not going to get anyone anywhere you know you know, I've mentioned this after after one of my well, my talk last year at the UFOC during the questions, somebody said, "Well, you've been saying here, you know, maybe we should try other things. Do you have any suggestions about any other things we should try rather than just saying we should try other things?" I said, "Well, apart from everything I've said in my talk here about human perception and knowing what the perception is and how that works and how memory works, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, um, maybe something like divination. There was a round of applause for that, mm -hmm. which kind of surprised well, me. Good. Yeah, that's good though. So the, I you mean, know, you know, I mean, there there is I mean, some it's hope. Like if there was a, well, no, you're right. There is. I mean, I'll give you another example. I mean, for and, me, the it might lie with the proletariat and not with the, the people that are running it. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, sorry. One of the things I can think of, which would be sort of the the perfect. Um, UFO conference would be that you would have somebody speak on the nuts and bolts alien angle, right. but then how about if we have somebody who talks about how um, DMT and psychedelics can bring these entities through? You know, it's not, I don't believe it is hallucination. I think DMT and certain psychedelics can actually open doors to insight to some other realm. Mm -hmm. So if we could have a Roswell researcher who thinks aliens crashed at Roswell. Somebody talking about DMT and calling entities through. Somebody looking at the Tulpa angle of right. the men in black. Uh, another person looking at man-made sources. Um, and, and, and so on, where you've got radically different um, lectures, yes. all at odds with each other, mm -hmm. but giving really thought-provoking lectures and thought-provoking conclusions and things to think about, yeah. that's far better than just telling us somebody go, doing a rehash of the Flatwoods Monster story of 52 <laughs> or, you know, the... Um, well, any case. I mean, and, and you, nothing you know what? to say. And we yeah. don't, treading water is not going to get us anywhere. So. And 100 people would show up instead of 3,000. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, 100 is better than none. And maybe if we kept up with that you know 100 yeah. would become oh, 200 I, and 300 i'm but. not saying that because i'm trying to throw cold water on it it's just kind of like you know it, it's it if you build it will they come i don't know 
the the point you know the, I think the point with you and me is that the fact that it's done would be would be a good idea um but it would be a great idea you'd have to be one have a bunch of money you want to throw away and two be very brave and three be you know okay to live with ambiguity uh in the midst of this as you know as an organizer as a participant and as a, an audience person and uh, yeah, I right. think that That's I think that would right. be great. It might have to start out as something private, you know, pr- private conferences for you know, like the uh, li- like the ones that for uh, that they've had at Ions and at uh, what you call it at um, Esalen and Guypan in France and things like that, where these are private conferences, but you know, that you record everything and then people you make the information available to people. No, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that all of those, you know, all those issues, angles, it's all valid. The problem is, is persuading the people who put the conferences on and the events um, to actually take a risk. And the problem with ufology, there aren't many risk takers. No. That, that's one of the big, that is one of the big problems. You know, I've got a lot of great friends in ufology. I'm not denouncing the whole scene. I have a huge yeah. number of great friends in the subject. But I just I don't see much risk taking, and I think to get answers, we have to take risks. Um, otherwise, we just we just kind of merrily slide along, oblivious, you know. And that where does that get you? That gets you nowhere. Um, no, not at all. I so, think a lot of the people doing the best work are quietly going up, as John Keel said, quietly. Some of these people yeah. are quietly doing this work and quietly exploring these ideas. And every once in a while, you hear about them, and I try to get them on this show for for the most part. And I'm still looking for those kind of people, mainly because I'd like I to mean, ch- cheerlead them into some kind of public consciousness, so they they will have a little bit more chance, um, audience, and maybe support to do these things. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that kind of really annoys me about certain figures in ufology is the approach to lecturing. You know, it's kind of like. It's almost like a fucking presidential um, statement, you know, where somebody says, I've got the latest news on Area 51. And then they pause to allow for a little, you know, an applause. This is going to be a great day for ufology. More applause, you know. (laughs) Yeah. And you've got to wear the suit and the shirt and the tie. Oh, no, um, I, I saw Stephen Greer do that at the, um, at the MUFON convention in Irvine about 10 years ago. And about 10 minutes into it, John Mack, who was sitting one chair away from me, rolled his eyes and said, I got better things to do, and he left the room. He went back to his room. <laughs> and, yeah, that, well, that, that, mean, that kind of thing. That, that kind of approach to me is it's less about understanding what UFOs are, and it's more, far more about just promoting the person um, yeah, and in, you know, in and group mindset. That, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I don't even own a tie. <laughs> I, own, I own like four biker jackets and jeans and 400 T-shirts, most of them black with the Ramones on or whatever. Yeah. And I've had people say to me, well, Nick, you know, could you just put a suit on for once? Well, number one, I don't own one. And number two, no. No. <laughs> and, um, I would never. And but it does. It shouldn't. Things like that should not matter because we sh- we're looking for answers. You know, when when people start to worry about what you're wearing or uh, you know um, what your your approach is, that it, it's not. You know, it's not following what we want to hear. 
well, then there's something wrong in ufology. It needs an overhaul yeah. or it needs a reboot. But, you know, probably reboot is a better way to put it. You know. I don't think it needs a reboot. I think it needs a bunch of people that start to ignore it. <laughs> and, and <laughs> well, that, that would work as well because then people in the you know the, the groups and whatever would panic, and they might they might cater to the alternative approach, realizing that um, you know I kind of like you know I don't talk about politics too much, but this whole issue you know with the shootings just recently, you know there really is regardless of what your views are on guns, the fact is that. You know, there has been this sudden push, particularly by these young kids, to alert people to, you know, various issues. And although, you know, that's far more important than UFOs, it's kind of a similar thing where there could be a sudden change in ufology which would get rid of the old farts, you know, and who run the subject for 60 years and who don't want anything changing, who feel threatened by women, you know, yeah. uh, just a bunch of asses, then that would be a good thing if, you know, we we could sort of have a sudden input where people are like, whoa, where did that come from? But yeah. it's good, you know. Yeah. Well, that, I think that's, that's happening. But the thing is that I don't think it's going to happen under the way that things are done. It's going to happen as a underground, quiet revolution where... People just take the. This is my idea, but they take the they take the power into their own hands, and they just say, "Look, I think this is BS. Let's go do it the way we want and see what we come up with." Mm -hmm. And we don't care if we're at a convention. We don't care if we're putting out books, and we don't care if we're on some TV show. That's nice. That's mm -hmm. great if people pay attention. But if not, we've got work to do. And most of the people I know that I'm really interested in seem to have that attitude, or at least I, I think so. I'm, I'm, I try to have that attitude. I, I like being invited to conventions and all that, but I also I'm not going to say something that somebody wants to hear. I'm just going to say what I want to say. If they're going to, if they try to say, you know, your message should be this, I'm like, well, it's it's not. I'm sorry, not not that I'm any great crusader, but it's uh, the, you're right. It, it, we need more of that in all these paranormal research communities where people um, are okay to go off on their own and do something that is not the party line in fashion in fact specifically if it's not the party line which it, it it's got to be it's got to be better than towing the party line as has uh, been up to now i mean i mean i see that you know you're talking about um, conventions and tv shows and all this kind of stuff i mean i get that there's um a certain show that i've been on several times where every time i go there they're like oh nick can, can you remove your earrings i'm like no yeah, you, know, you, you won't you won't remove them. No, well, it would be more it would be more sort of um, professional if if you didn't have them in because <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna distract people from what you're talking about. Yeah, I was you like, told Dude, me this. Yeah. we're talking about aliens. Nobody's gonna care. I've got two piercings in this ear and three in the other. Nobody is gonna care. And if they do, they're focusing on the wrong thing. Yeah. And you have to focus you know, on the again, message. You know, I'm like, if you want, if you want somebody who looks like a, a fucking college professor, go get a college get a professor. College professor. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> and and again, this is one of the problems. It's it's like ufology has almost been neutered. You know, nobody wants to rock the boat for fear of not getting booked at next year's conference. And and as long as that approach exists and dominates 
we're not going to get anywhere. We're going to be like some... It'll be like some old old age pensioners kind of group that meets every <laughs> Sunday for lunch and they talk about the same old things over again and then they do the same thing the next Sunday, you know. Do you remember when so-and-so came into town? Oh, yes, I remember that. And then the next Sunday, <laughs> it's the same old thing again, you know. Yes. Um, do you remember when Lonnie Zamora want, saw that? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if that's what people want, then... That's how it goes, but I mean, there's a there is a far better way, and it's and it's a way that would get us more answers. Whether it's UFOs, Slenderman, did you, you ever? Know, um, yeah, I've got a question. Another question: Did you ever notice that the audience at your talk was more into what you were saying than the person that booked you? Like, are you under- talking about any specific? No, just, well, you mean in just at all ever. Do you know what I'm getting um, at? Here? Where they got it better well, than the I, person I, that that booked you there? Yeah, well, actually, yeah. I mean, there've been a couple of you know, I've, as you know, I've done quite a few books over the years on the Men in Black phenomenon and yeah. related stuff. Now, when I tell you know groups say what what do you want to talk about? I will do my research into the Men in Black mystery, and um, there've been a couple of occasions where. The organizers who, being the organizers, you know, they were long-term figures in ufology, were surprised when I veered away from and said, you know, the real men in black are nothing like Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones in the movies. You know, the real men in black are sort of bordering on the paranormal. They're sort of these emaciated, ghoulish, pale figures that are more like vampires than secret agents of the government. And the organizers were not wanting that. There are a couple of cases where I know they were like cringing because I was getting into the world of the paranormal um, with the men in black and they were expecting, you know, me to talk about men in black coming from the Pentagon but the audience liked it because I was talking about stuff that they hadn't heard before you know, the idea of maybe the men in black could be tulpas or how people talked about when they're in the close proximity to the men in black they felt that energy was being drained out of them like psychic vampires. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't, it was as far away from nuts and bolts UFOs as possible. And the, I could tell, you know, these sort of 75, 80 year old doddering old geezers. <laughs> oh, well, well, I didn't think you were going to talk about that. I thought you were going to talk about how, you know, the government's sending people out to silence UFO witnesses. I'm, no, I'm not talking about that, because that's not what the witnesses are telling us. Yeah. The witnesses are telling us these really weird, off-the-wall, supernatural theme cases, and they're like, oh, well, well, all right. But the audience liked it because, as I said, it was something new, new. and alternative yeah. for yeah. them. And um, so that that's encouraging, you know, if you've got an audience... You know, it could be quite cool if the audience just turned on the organizer, you know. It's like everybody's suddenly infected by the zombie virus and attacks them, you know what I mean? <laughs> Their eyes all start glowing and they turn to the back of the room where the organizer is sitting. <laughs> and you say, go! Yeah, I, yeah but I, I, I do think, you know, I, I, don't, I don't sort of go out of my way to cause problems. No, no, no. And for, for the sake I of it. I do it because I genuinely think that the alternative answers or the alternative explanations offer us better explanations for what we're looking into. 
uh, I think they make more sense. Yeah. And, um, but, yeah, part of me does like winding them up as well, though. <laughs> no, but there's, you, you don't, you don't do, yeah, you don't do it as, a, as, an end, as an end in itself. It's more like, well, I'm going to say this thing. No. If you don't like it, I'm sorry, yeah. but it's really... Well, I'm actually not even sorry, really. <laughs> really? Well, I've, if, uh, I if no. I don't even know. I've, I feel bad if somebody doesn't like what I'm saying, but it's it's I'm not going to stop me from saying it. I'm I'm I don't really care if you feel uncomfortable. Um, actually, I do care if you feel uncomfortable, but I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm not going to pat you on the back and say I didn't mean it. Mm. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, if I find a, a conference organizer who's embarrassed by the fact that I talk about the Men in Black being supernatural. You know, I I, I I just don't care. You know, yeah. it's um, I just don't. If they if I've embarrassed them, well, that's tough luck. They <laughs> they should have looked further into what my beliefs are before they booked me to speak. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But well, but this is all ufology. You know, it's uh, it's good. It's fun. It's crazy. It's um, you know, I, I would never want to leave the subject of, of ufology because, you know, I've. I'm fascinated by the subject, yeah. and and I think we really do. We could solve it. We just it's how you know how we get the answers. I, I just we just haven't. We're not at that point yet, but we could be by just sharing things and just not you know that the whole I want to believe factor. Really? Let's just you know clear the decks and start over and <laughs> put everything out there to be looked at and um i, I don't even know if, you know, a if you're solution. 15 50 or 80 you know just yeah. keep your mind open yeah well i don't i've gotten to the point where i don't even want them I, I don't even think there's a solution and it's a mindset i there might be one but if i think there's one it's already it's already you know pushing me headlong towards i gotta find a solution Instead of letting the solution yeah. or whatever it is organically come to you through your interest in the way you look at it and, and a non-dogmatic attitude, I think that that will help um, far more, at least for me personally, than saying there's a solution and we're going to get to it. I really don't know what the solution is, and I don't want to steer myself towards one. So when people ask me what I'm looking for, I say understanding. Yeah, and I think you know one of the things that's important that we haven't sort of really touched on when it comes to all this kind of research mm-hmm. is is being proactive you know for some people they go so far or they'll investigate this or that and you know it gets a little bit dicey or whatever and they they kind of back away or you know that the heart's not in anymore i think you know a proactive approach um and and an enthusiasm you know right that, those are as vital as anything else because you know that that's what we need. I mean, you don't need half-hearted people pushing for this, you know. Um, but some people, I don't agree with their theories on you know, various aspects of cryptozoology, but I respect them because they full-on believe in their, you know, their approach, and they go out in the field every weekend, you know, tooled up and ready to take pictures and everything else. Yeah. I don't agree with them, but they're doing the right thing. In, in terms of looking for answers and um and I think that comfort blanket angle sometimes stops people from bothering because oh well Mr Smith solved it for us and he took that's a, that's what we want to hear. We don't need to look any further. I'm happy with what he told me, you know, and um yeah. that that kind of stops people from having that ballsy initiative, you know. 
Yeah, I've stopped worrying here about um, if somebody's going to steal an idea or whatever because 99.9% of people aren't going to do anything about it. So I don't have any problem talking about what I think <laughs> because I'm still free to go out and do it, and I'm, I'm, I'm damn well going to go out and do it. But um, if somebody else hears about it and you know, decides they want to do something too, you know, fine. Just don't steal my idea and call it your own. Other than that, it's, uh, yeah, most people won't do anything. Um, which is unfortunate, but that uh, like uh, you know, a self-help thing that somebody pointed me at recently. It's like, well, that 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 leaves the field wide open for you to go do that thing that you really think is uh, is important and leads somewhere, and that you re- you know there's there's a room of fifty people sitting around and they're all talking about something, and one person says, well, let's go do it, and they run out the door, and maybe one person will follow them, <laughs> maybe, maybe. I think that I think that's kind of how it works. But that that person that runs out the door. Like you said, whether I agree with them or not, I want to see what they found out. You know, yeah. There may be, and they have. You know, when they argue with me, they have. They're coming from a place of, well, I actually went out and looked at this. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you don't get that happen too much. You know, it's like the believers in this talk to these people, and you know, the other people with with their group. You know, I mean, I've been to so many conferences like that where. The same faces, you know, sit at the same table for dinner or huddling in the same corner for lunch, whispering about somebody else in the room, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, whether it, oh, you see what he's written in his book. Oh, do you know who's fucking who? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's like, <laughs> this, 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 that, is, that aspect of ufology really, you know, is, is one of the things why ufology needs changing because... We are just, we really are just, to a great degree, we're coasting along um, from the perspective of this is, this is no longer like, um, well, for a lot of, for some people, not for a lot, but for some, and particularly the leaders of groups, it's no longer about investigations. It's about keeping the group um, solvent and running and going. Yeah. Well, you who, know, and, uh, you know, here, go out on a limb and tell me who you think is, um, you know, just a few examples of people who think this person is actually going out and doing something, whether I agree with them or not, and I respect them for it. Do you, are those, um, are there people like that that you kind of you're, you're always excited to hear from? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'll give you several uh, examples from different aspects of the paranormal. A good friend of mine who lives not. Uh, only about 20 minutes driveway, uh, Lyle Blackburn. Uh-huh. Now, Lyle is heavily into Bigfoot and, you know, the whole Boggy Creek story and um, Southern Bigfoot reports, sort of, you know, the the wilds of Alabama and, um, you know, um, uh, you know the, the, uh, the east coast of Texas, uh, border, I should say, of Texas and Louisiana, places like that. And Lyle, you know, very often, not every weekend, but a lot of weekends, you know, he's out there, you know, um, getting the latest reports, um, going through the woods, the swamps, etc., etc. And, you know, he's, yes, he's got a lot of new stories, hasn't got Bigfoot yet, but he's someone who has that enthusiasm and the drive to do that, you mm-hmm. know, on a regular basis and, and look for answers. Um, when it comes to when it comes to the UFO subject, you know, um, if somebody's doing good research, and whether I agree with them or not, you know, if they're doing good research, I think that that's a good thing. Um, now, and some original thought. Who, 
yeah, I mean, one of the people who, you know, uh, I think you've got to give kudos to uh, would be Robbie, Robbie Graham, you know, when in front of an audience um, at the UFO Congress, which is very much ET-driven, he basically said, you know, disclosure ain't going to happen, guys, you know. And, um, and I, I, you know, I think in that he gave like a wealth, from what I've heard, he was a very well-thought-out, rational, reasonable argument that he made. It was. And I was clearly, there. Clearly, you know, <laughs> you know, okay, yeah. And, you know, he clearly then, he'd sat down, he'd thought this out carefully, and he provided a very valuable uh, angle on disclosure that most people either don't want to hear or just don't believe, but mostly they just don't want to hear it. Um, and I, I respect anybody who is willing to get up in front of an audience of seven or 800 people who are going to be hostile at the very least to what they've got to say. Um, and it's not just, you know, Robbie making a few statements and sound bites. It's, you know, actually sitting down and preparing a presentation and, you know, putting a, a solid argument out there. And um, and I'm not just saying this because it's your show, but I mean, throughout your writings, throughout your entire UFO career, I mean, you've been like me. You, you haven't sort of, you know, just um, followed the leader, so to speak. You know, Project Beta. I mean, for example, that book um, is not the book that ufology wanted to hear in the, in the same way that my Roswell UFO conspiracy book isn't what people want to hear. But, you know, you put your book out um, because of what you found and what you discovered in the face of people you knew were going to, you know, be against this. Not necessarily because perhaps privately they disagreed. It was spoiling their fun. You know what I mean? And that's not that's not a slur against you. That's actually praising your work for having the guts to actually approach something in a way that people in ufology don't want approaching. You know, people who actually think outside the box are the ones who are doing the right thing. So. Yeah. I, well, I, pre I I wasn't fishing in in the least, but I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate the uh, the thoughts. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, a good example Nick, of somebody of who, you know, I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but he has, he still has all that enthusiasm, and he still researches and does all his work. He's uh, Dr. Bob Wood. Ah. Now, now, Bob, you know, he's heavily into Roswell, MJ-12, and, you know, from an alien perspective, I'm not. But Bob's, Bob's interest and fascination for this is genuine, you know, and he's always, he's always on. When you see him, you know yeah, he's like ninety yeah. now. He's always on, uh -huh. and he's always, and he's always, you know, enthusiastic, and and he's an honest guy. You know, he's he's, he's doing what he genuinely believes, and mm -hmm. um, and even though I don't, you know, I'm not into the whole MJ12 thing. The fact that there is somebody who's still looking into it, I, I actually do think that's still important because the, there, are, even I think there are aspects to the stories to you know, the backstories to where the documents came from, who put them together. There are still legitimate questions to be asked, you know. So, um, yeah, you know, I again, I give kudos to um, to Bob um, to just doing what he does. I, I you know, I have, I have sort of a, you know, um, uh, a, a good view of people who do look at these phenomena 
um, with with enthusiasm and not just you right. know, sort of slowly pedaling your bike uphill or whatever. You know? Yeah, you know what I noticed uh, about myself at this UFO conference that um, Alejandro and uh, his uh, partner Karen kindly gave me a um, press pass. I was forced by their generosity to actually go in and listen to lectures that I would normally not have listened to. I noticed that I had to sit, th- I would sit there and I would start filtering. That's bullshit. No, that's bullshit. No, no. okay, that's good. That's not bu-. And I know, I realized that I was doing this and I was thinking, I've gotten really clickish in my own mind about what people are saying. You know, it might be total BS. I, I do not know. But when I threw those, you know, threw the filters out and just, and just trusted my own, you know, I, I can listen and not, and not make judgments. And that's how I used to operate. And I, I noticed that I'd been losing that um, mm-hmm. because no matter what you think of what somebody's saying, um, with with a few you know glaring exceptions for me, there's always something in there that, that will be interesting to me that I can latch on to. There was a woman, Susie Hansen from New Zealand. I'd never heard of her. Um, she started talking about a lifetime of um, abductions or apparent abductions. I don't really know what to make of abductions. I don't really know if they have anything to do with the UFO subject. I don't like when people connect it and get so far into it that, you know, that's, this is absolute reality and you don't, you know, you don't realize. What she did was she talked about um, uh, alien language and symbols that had been given to her, which is vitally interesting to me. It's just something I'm very interested in without having to care whether it actually is there's some external reality to it or not. You know, if I was standing there next to her, would she have been, you know, twitching around under the bed or you know, hallucinating or what. I have no idea. But the concepts that she talked about were quite interesting to me. You know, how can you put an entire idea into one symbol? That, that's called a sigil. That, that's, been, that's been done by humans. Yeah. Um, or, or, or a set of ideas. Uh, so you know, that's just one example. So it, it's, there's, there's a weird thing where I had to work on my own, um, my own attitude when I was there. And when I did, I realized there's, you know, Apart, you know, I can still feel like, you know, <laughs> there's a couple of lectures I did not go to because I knew I wasn't going to get anything out of them. But then I went to others because I didn't, you know, it's like, well, well what about what, what about the new physics of light and consciousness? Let me, let me go and see if there's anything here. And there was stuff there that was interesting, valuable and uh, and um, possibly uh, what not rele- revelatory looking at it as an academic who's there to gather information without having necessarily to be for or against the information. I think that was valuable for me to know. A valuable, a valuable lesson for me. No, that's good. Uh, it, 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 it was just, it was uh, just a weird little, uh, weird little lesson that I, I learned this last weekend <laughs> or that's last week at the international UFO conference. So, yeah. Well, you can, you can learn a lot of conferences, you know, from, uh, and, and different conferences that you go to, you know, different themes, um, you know, the vibe of the audience. Yeah. Um, and yes, there's, there's... And also, you know, the, go the speakers ahead. as well, mainly. Yeah, yeah I, most of them I weren't interested in, but then, like I said, I was forced to listen to some of them. And whether I, though I did not accept, agree with, or, you know, think that they were, they, they had... 100% valuable information. There's always bits and pieces. A baby with a bathwater thing is probably not a good idea. Um, no. So, you know, that's that's the other side of the, the coin there. And then, you know, sort of uh, uh, 
what I'm saying here is is kudos to to uh, uh, Rojas for inviting these people, um, especially Robbie. I mean, he invited somebody he knew that a lot of people wouldn't like. Um, well, you know what? I would say about a third of the audience really didn't like what he said. A third of the audience had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> and a third of the audience um, were either neutral or accepting of what he was saying. And, and, and actually, I sat behind a couple that were, uh, this, this older couple that were actually nodding a lot and, and being very supportive. So you never know. No, you're right. I, I think, you know, lectures have to be entertaining, but we can do without it being about entertainment. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you, you, you know, a lecture, you could be full of great material, but if it's as dull as dishwater, you know, <laughs> it's not going to entertain people. So you need to entertain people. Yeah. But, like I said, there's a difference between entertaining them and just giving them entertainment. Yes. You know. No, you have to and educate and unfortunately, entertain them. Unfortunately, that happens a lot where... Like I said, you know, you've got the guy on stage with the careful pauses and the, you know, the new designer suit and the red tie and um, waiting for the applause. And that, yeah. that's not UFO research. That's nothing to do with UFO research. No. That's just being a dick. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a middle ground here where you're... Well, the best thing you can do is give people a... a um, different perspective and some new information that that's about the best thing you could do because that in, in itself is entertaining yeah so information is you know the, the reason why it's so important you know to we do this is because it's like i always say to people that the most important people in this field are not the authors the writers the you know the people who've got a podcast or whatever it's the witnesses yeah. and when the witnesses share their stories with us, even if they might anger some people or infuriate others or confuse others, when we go on stage and we share data provided to us by witnesses, then the witnesses should be respected and the person who, you know, is sharing their story, um, you know, that's what we should be looking at, not just not looking at how can we get another 150 people to come to the conference next year? Mm -hmm. You know, I get it. Organizers of events have to, you know, spend money out their own pocket yeah. to fund an event. I get that. Mm -hmm. But I think there are times when the line gets crossed and that's all it's about, or that's, that's, that's primarily what it's about. Right. You know, it's like the re the research angle is like coasting, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you hear something you different. It. It's almost by accident a lot of times. Yeah. Now, and I'm glad they got Robbie to speak, and they knew in advance that, you know, it wasn't what a lot of people wanted to hear. That's actually a good thing, you know, um, daring to actually do something slightly alternative. Um, yeah. You know, which well, maybe, I think maybe that's so the way to do it. Ufology, which is, yeah, the, the, there's so much of ufology, which One is way. basically the parallel of an old rock band that just <laughs> refuses to re that refuses to retire. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. When, you know, they can't do the scissors kick anymore when they've got the guitar in the hand. You know, the singer can't hit the high notes. Um, you know, the one, the, 
bass player's back's too sore to keep smashing his guitar after every gig, you know. <laughs> and they become they become everything they they should never have been. Yeah, that they were um, against in the beginning. Yeah, and now they become part of the mainstream and you know, there is a mainstream in ufology and ufology should never have a mainstream because we're talking about fucking UFOs. You know, <laughs> how can it be mainstream? How much less you know, mainstream could you get? It should always be alternative. Yeah. <laughs> it should always be alternative, but it's it's as slowly it's been turned into a mainstream kind of atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. Um and I hate mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I always have too. <laughs> Um, I don't think I want to keep you up any longer, and plus I have to make dinner for Sigrid, so. <laughs> oh, it's only 10.30. I'm going to bed for another two hours. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, well, she's yeah. going to go to bed pretty soon. But, I mean, I don't want, you, uh, I don't want to cause any... Uh, Marital strife. strife in the Bishop House. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been on for two and a half hours, and that's wonderful, and I'm going to keep this entire show. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and it's wow. probably the longest show you'll do on this. It's even longer than Coast. <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah. When you got all the commercials and whatever. Exactly, yeah, with the commercials. And I never have any, I never will. So, well, well thanks so much, Nick. Uh, I'm not going to tell people where to look for you. I'll just put those links in the, unless there's something you want to you want to throw in there that we're, uh, I would not put up as a link. Which links would you like me to put up? No, I mean, um, I mean, most of my links are sort of simple. I mean, there's my blog you know uh, my main blog which i've got um the world of whatever uh, world one? of whatever yeah yeah and and then you know i've got you can go to um, amazon and find all my books there okay um but my uh, twitter accounts nick redfern ufo they're, they're basically the three main ones i use you know so. okay well i'll stick those on there well thanks for coming on okay. and uh be, being able to uh swear at ufology which is always a good thing <laughs> <laughs> not a bad thing though. No, and, uh, not at all. and again thanks for you know for having me on on a subject that most people you know the slender man most people wouldn't think necessarily to have on a paranormal themed show you know for a lot of people it really is sort of a you know um a bunch of stories fictional stories that have just gone crazy and affected a portion of the population you know it, it does go much deeper than that so uh thanks for Letting us go deep on it, you know. Sure. Well, the way we talked about it and the way you treated it is it's right in the wheelhouse of um, the kind of mm -hmm. stuff I like to talk about on the show where you blur lines and, and uh, bring in uh, uh, ideas and, and uh, make connections that you, most people normally wouldn't. And that that's always exciting. It always, always makes me happy. So thanks, Nick. And, um, All oh, right, cool. Thanks. Uh, uh, what song do you want to hear? I'll let you, hear the, I'll let you pick the outro song. Um, well, something appropriate, because it has come up several times with the Men in Black. What about um, Men in Black by Frank Black? Okay. Have I played that before when you've song. been on? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think I played it on some show. There we go. All right. Thanks, Nick. All right. Thanks, Greg. See you later. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.